Hey gang, welcome back for another episode of your favorite regenerative ag podcast, Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Brian Alexander. You might know me on social media as Red Hills Rancher. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of people just like you through my Patreon page. Your support makes it all worth it. You can join the rest of my crazy, amazing patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Check the show notes for a link. Confession time. I have a very hard time eating. I'm a picky eater, and it's been a struggle my whole life to fuel my body properly. When I got curious about nutrition, I asked my doctor about vitamins, and that led to a conversation about where vitamins come from. He didn't know, and I realized I needed to make a change, so I started searching for a better source of high-quality nutritional supplements to spend my hard-earned dollars on. I reached out to several companies, and I'm proud to announce a partnership with a company I can stand behind. Introducing One Earth Health Grass-Fed Beef Organ Supplements. Organ meats are the most nutrient-dense foods we can eat and have been uniquely treasured by our ancestors. Organ meats are not only nutrient-dense, but they're also a great source of essential vitamins and minerals. The liver is packed with vitamin A, K, and E, while the heart is a great natural source of COQ10. The spleen contains four times the amount of iron as the liver, and the kidney is a great source of vitamin B complex. The pancreas supports gut health. I can't tell you how much better I feel since I started taking these supplements. When I don't take them, I have much less energy and focus. Just a few capsules every morning gives me everything my body needs to thrive. We are built to eat diverse diets that include whole animals and organ meats. We have lost our perspective on food and its purpose. Give yourself the gift of radical health. Give yourself One Earth Health grass-fed beef organ supplements. Visit www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or just click the link in the show notes. This episode of the podcast sponsored by Bobo Links from Blue Nest Beef. Bobo Links beef sticks are incredibly delicious, made with natural seasonings and slow cooked to perfection. They have the right blend of tang, smoke, and spice. I always have some close by for a protein boost when I'm too busy to stop for a meal. Bobo Links are gluten-free, soy-free, casein-free, and sugar-free, packed with 7 grams of protein and only 70 little calories per serving. So if you're looking for a snack that's both nutritious and delicious, give Bobo Links beef sticks from Blue Nest Beef a try. I know you'll love them as much as I do. Click the link in the show notes and use the code BOBOREBOOT for $10 off your first pack. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. One, two, three, test, one, two, three. One, two, three, test, one, two, three than I am I just kind of threw some in the corners and like I sat there and looked and like okay what looks like it's going to bounce a sound wave I'll just go okay put one there and put one there and put one there and put one there and so uh I'm underneath Tanya's office and kind of kind of underneath her office in the dining room and every once in a while I'll get some pre she'll start cleaning and okay moving the chairs that's not a big deal don't vacuum. <laughs> you can't vacuum. You vacuum, it blows out all of my microphones, and there's no way around that. Your volume is going to be that big number four knob there if you want to adjust it higher or lower for whatever your ear preference is. Okay. 
And this mic sounds good. It's a good mic. I've also got it. Let's see what your EQ curve is here on it. Dude, where's my mouse? So you are here. I've got it EQ'd there. You want to say something? It's kind of cool to watch it. Testing, testing. One, two, three. Welcome to Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. This is episode 90-whatever. <laughs> 90 bleeping the blorp. And the, who's it and the what's it? Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I don't keep track. I don't even, <laughs> I don't make those announcements because it's too much of a, I know I'll screw something up editing or something will happen. We'll have to change right. episode numbers. Every t- almost every time I've tried to do an episode number in the intro, it's turned out to be wrong. So fix it in post. Yep. Yep. All right, hang on just a minute. Let me make sure. <laughs> so I'm recording each channel twice. One is the the raw audio from the microphone, and one is after all of these effects that I have here, the gate and the compressor and the EQ post mixer yeah that's a that's that's a lot more of a mixer board than i have i just uh i run a little roadcaster pro 2 i just picked it up a couple months ago and it's uh it's a lot simpler to operate you know i I need things that are going to be a little bit simpler to operate because uh well i'm not a musician (laughs) so um do you do you like it i've i've been i've been toying with the idea of replacing this rig with just you know something that is purpose-built for that um there are a couple of things that are that are keeping me from doing that. One of those is the uh, the ability to uh, run the live stream and interact with uh, with the computer in here because we do so much live streaming. It's you know the the roadcaster. My understanding is built more for the recording of the podcast and not necessarily video switching. I I think that's right. Um, but they did come out with the roadcaster pro two, mm-hmm. and I I had an original one and I you know I I, I passed that on to another guy that was starting up a podcast. Um, and I got a two not long after they came out and like for my purposes, for what I do for my podcast, it was real, super easy to get it set up. Like, you know, settings imported, everything imported and it, and it sounds the same. I can set it up to sound the same where Mm -hmm. it sounds the same out of the box, but it's got more toys. It's got, you know, filters, it's got a bigger sound bank that's programmable, um, and and you can do a lot of the mixing. I'm not sure if you can do um, like the the software like you have up there, like the the specific EQ right. curve to match it to a mic and tune a room. I don't know if it'll do all that, but it it's a lot easier for me mm-hmm. for me to set up and operate with you know sure. my little bit lower of a skill level. Sure. Oh well, we're we're here in um we're not in my studio if you couldn't tell by the sound of my voice through a microphone um we're not in my studio so where are we we're in we're in in my air studio uh south of sharon kansas about about a mile south of sharon um in the in the basement of my farmhouse where i have converted a room to purpose-built uh streaming and recording I like. I mean, this is better than mine. I'm, I'm like getting ideas, and I'm probably going to get some uh, get some pictures. So, um, I, I guess before we get going, if anybody read the title, they know your name. But who are you, guy? I'm Aaron Traffis, and I I farm here south of south of Sharon on on you know legacy family operation, fourth generation farmer here, uh, south of Sharon. Cool, cool, and um, well. The intro music. You provided the intro music for me as well. Do you want to talk about that for a few seconds? Sure. I uh, one of one of the many irons I have in the fire is is fronting the Aaron Traffis band, and we play our our original. It's tough to pigeonhole the music. Um, 
you know, and, and everything I, everything I understand about music is when you can't describe it, then you're somewhere in the mushy middle, which, which doesn't necessarily have a marketable, uh, a, a marketable audience, but, uh, we call it, we call it anthemic Americana or ag rock or, you know, various terms that we have tried to, to come up with and claim, but, uh, it's essentially alternative country music and, and, uh, Whenever we come out of the studio, we we grab a an instrument only mix, uh, an instrumental mix, and um, you were were kind enough to leverage that as the uh, as the intro stinger for and the outro sometimes for your for your podcast. It's it's actually I don't think I've missed putting it in as the outro. It's just the last like minute minute and mm-hmm. a half, and it's kind of in the background. Right. Sometimes it might be a little bit hard to hear. Um, but yeah, I I think I had somebody one time say that it was uh what do you say punk rock country i really like that punk rock country intro you got going on i said well thanks that's uh graciously provided by my friend aaron at the aaron traffis band so sometimes i sometimes i record commercial for uh shows that i have uh, upcoming and uh one of the guys that i've run around with playing music for forever since we were roommates back in in manhattan uh is lucas maddie and sometimes i let him write copy for these these commercials, and I think he once wrote uh, "Punk Country Prince" or something like that, trying to be <laughs> trying to be cute. And so that's not the first time I've heard it called "Punk Country." Yeah, I, I can see that. I can definitely see that. And I hate writing ad copy. It's like, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, uh, y'all didn't hear the same old ads I've been running for the last month, and I actually recorded new ad copy for this one. <laughs> That's something that in another life I have a lot of experience with. I'm going to admit, I'm going to admit right now. Uh, so have you heard about that chat GPT program, the oh, AI program? Absolutely. You know, it'll write ad copy for you. I bet it will. Just give it a couple bullet points and say, write ad copy. Um, something I've been kind of messing with it uh, the last couple of days. Uh, I think the last thing I asked it to do is, was write a comparative analysis about uh, different farming methods as they relate to soil health and human health. And, and man, it, you put in something like that and it just, it takes about two seconds to think and it just starts throwing text on the page. And it, it's, it's scary. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, there's a, there's a artificial intelligence chat program out there called chat GPT. And I, I think it has all the knowledge of the universe prior to like 2021 so you can ask it questions about people. You can ask it, ask it to write a paper in the style of, of like the King James Bible, and it'll do it. It's it's a pretty amazing program, and it's not limited to just you know copy, right? Uh, we so so you were you were a guest once on our little Sunday Sunday show, the what we call our Sunday service group, which is a group that started in 2020, and the reason this studio exists because um, you know we will start our third year of every Sunday night uh, streaming meetings. Uh, here in another couple of months, uh, and uh, as as you remember, every Sunday we have a different and unique game on there. And so ChatGPT was the subject a couple of weeks ago. We were playing with it and uh, said, "Write a song in the style of Bob Dylan about whatever topic we put it." And it does it, and it's ridiculous. And so you know, we have, like I said, we have a game, and um, the guy that generates these games thought he could use it to to help with the game. And so it was kind of a trivia thing. And he said, write these trivia questions. And it did. And he thought, well, maybe I can take it a step further. Okay, ChatGPT, 
write the code to build this game in Node.js or whatever language he was using at the time. And it did. And he just copies it and pastes it in. And we have our game that this thing wrote that used to take him hours. And now he just comes up with the prompt and it generates it. And it's not like he has to go debug it because it's a perfect AI. Well, know <laughs> we, we find bugs. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> you could probably use it to debug it. It will get better. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And things like that, things like that are very, very interesting, you know, from an overall like society point of view of society, mm -hmm. like, you know, okay, how is this technology going to be used in society? How, how, how are people going to leverage this technology to do good things instead of doing evil things or doing bad things in the world? And like uh, some of the chatter that I've seen is like uh, professors, university professors are really upset about these AI chat programs. Right. And I can see why. Sure. Like, I could definitely see why. Like, well, let's write a doctoral dissertation on the difference between, you know, A and B. And the program will do it for you. And, you, you know, you turn that into your professor. Yeah, we're giving everybody ideas on how to cheat at college. Um, but you give that to your professor. And how is he going to know if you wrote it or an AI wrote it? Right. One of the other challenging uh, components to this as someone who wants to see this uh, promising technology improve over time is that they say that that right now we're kind of at an inflection point in content availability on the internet these uh, these programs these AIs require in order to learn and improve they require a corpus of information to study and work through and parse and figure out things well now that we've released all of these AIs into content generation on the internet there's so much of this content that's generated that future AIs and training them is going to be very difficult because, you know, it's kind of garbage in and garbage out. And so the AIs of today that are writing all of this content that will be scraped by future AIs, <laughs> they are not going to be able to learn as quickly and as, as good because they face the same problems as those university professors in being able to tell what is actually useful human generated content and what is made by today's, you know, arguably um, nascent or, or inexperienced AIs. You know, that, that, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, we're not, maybe we won't be able to tell in the future what's, what's human generated and what's AI generated. And maybe there's, maybe there won't be a difference. Um, and maybe it is, maybe it is, we have passed that inflection point where AI is already, you know, exerting an irrevocable influence on our culture and we just can't see it, you know. Google, they've been using AI for years. Amazon uses AI to predict what you're going to buy. They use AI to stock their warehouses ahead of time for for what they think people are going to buy in an area. You know that that's nothing new. Well, there's there's also some some flexibility in what the term AI means, right? Your 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 Amazon AI is simply a, a an algorithm that is, you know, continuously improved by you know, as as the humans notice inefficiencies, they will they will go in and, and improve it. And, you know, something like a, a chat GPT, a general AI, you know, is is, you know, a next level, you could say. And there are there are there are distinctions. And this is, you know, it's it's something that interests me, but it's not my wheelhouse. You know, the difference between a neural network and an AI and algorithms and all of those different terms that describe different permutations of computer intelligence or artificial intelligence. I read a book once, like, yes, I can read, folks. I know that might be shocking. Um, 
and it was it was set kind of a near future hard sci-fi which you know i like to consume that kind of content well, from time it. to time absolutely <laughs> and um he called them artificial stupids <clears throat> that's that's fun Be, and it was uh if maybe a few more minutes i'll actually remember the author in the book but the the premise was they didn't ever they, they could never replicate the infinite complexity of the human mind and human thought in a computer so they just backtracked and said okay we're going to build these specific stupid intelligences to do specific tasks and okay i can kind of see that but that that requires a, a sort of restraint <laughs> that that i don't see very much in the world these days no no, if if there's one thing that humanity has shown, it's a it's a, a blatant inability to exercise restraint. Oh man, so many rabbit trails to chase. So where do you see? I'm trying to figure out how to tie in this <clears throat> artificial intelligence discussion back into farming and food systems. I'm not sure how we're going to get there. Um, I mean, I think we see some some of these smart technologies and and intelligences. I I can kind of see them going that way. Like, you know, there's been a big push in the last couple of years, um, driverless grain carts. Mm -hmm. Okay, I get that. You know, being a grain cart operator can be very busy, can be very thankless. You get blamed for a lot of shit that goes wrong. Uh, because you're never in the right spot, you know, somebody's always waiting on you, you didn't get the truck ride, you spilled a little bit. I can see, okay, let's replace that with a, let's replace that with an AI. Well, what's the next step? Well, we can replace the guy in the combine pretty much with an AI. I mean, the, the new John Deere combines that are well over a half a million dollars that I don't know how well they work, but apparently you set one in the field, have the GPS guidance set up, press a button to get it started cutting and then press a button to where it automatically adjusts itself. And you're just, a, you're not even a steering wheel holder at that point. You can just sit there and watch Netflix all day and let the, and let the machine do the work. So like how many more manual tasks are there that we can automate or, or, or what's left on the farm that they're not going to try to replace us with a machine or with, with an AI. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, the, the, you mentioned the, the driverless grain cart stuff. I mean, that's something that, you know, three or four years ago, I was, you know, playing around on Twitter and finding some, some farmers who were experimenting with, you know, putting Arduino boards and microcontrollers and actually building things in cabs to remote control it from the combine, right. Using some kind of remote mechanism to pull it alongside and control speed and, and make turns and things. But you know, the next evolution that I've seen recently is the introduction of cabless remote AI farming tractors from, you know, Case IH recently released theirs, you know, a, a couple of years ago, you know, and so um, it's not just a, you know, be in the cab and let the machine do its work. It's you can be elsewhere, you know, or you can be in a cabbed tractor in one field and have a second machine in the same field doing doing its work or in another field. So we're there just takes money it takes a lot of money takes a lot of money which 
Oh man, that's that's a whole other subject that we could get into is profitability and you know the get big get out mentality and what it's going to take in the future. Um, and I think that's that's a whole whole other giant can of worms that we don't want to get into right now. So let's let's circle back and let's let's talk about the Travis Farm here in the Sharon Valley. What um, I know we we've talked previously, we've talked several times over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and um, I think you made the comment that back in the summer that uh you thought that you're you'd been doing some things that were kind of progressive here in the valley based on you know other folks around you want to talk about some of those sure well um to set the table a little bit um you know i grew up on the farm obviously and we were basically weed on weed on wheat and conventional tillage practices uh, and i i went to college and and uh would come back for for harvest uh, but but that was really the extent of my involvement in the farm from you know for for ten years it was just coming back during harvests and uh, and then my father died suddenly in uh, 2012 and uh, I found myself with farm to run and no institutional knowledge to fall back on it was just me and so I was trying to 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 figure out how to you know not completely crash into the mountain right away and so I obviously picked up the farming practices that I knew them to be there in 2012 and uh, started going to conferences and things like that and quickly learned that, uh, you know, moldboard plow and, you know, burn plow, wheat on wheat, that was probably unsustainable. Um, and, you know, I'm still convinced of that and and realized that I wanted to make the transition to a no-till and a crop rotation. And the reason that, you know, it's not that dad didn't know that that was not the, the, the greatest practice, but we had such a rye problem. And you do, anytime you do monocrop after monocrop, and it's the same pro- same crop, you have, you have weed, weed challenges. And so I knew that um, rotation was the way to, to solve that. And I, I think I plowed 1,000 acres in 2014, and we had a big two-inch rain shortly thereafter, and I watched a lot of topsoil go away. Uh, and I realized that was not something I wanted to do again. Uh, and so I... I looked at at making the you know how fast could I make a, a reasonable transition to no-till, and uh, commenced that. And I think the the last time I did uh, large-scale tillage was in 2015. I bought a ripper and I ripped everything because I was worried about the compaction layer, right? The 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 hard pan that came from the years of plowing. And so I bought a ripper and I ripped every acre. And then I sold the ripper the same year, and uh, and and bought a uh, a no-till drill and you know started started using that going forward and you know a, a year or two later bought a planter and uh, a no-till planter or at least a planter that was was able to handle no-till <laughs> practices i don't think that uh, at the time my planter was built they did much no-till but in any case uh that's kind of when i when i began making the transition was was at that time um and as far as the the things that got some people raising eyebrows you know around the the valley the sharon valley that that, that we're in um was the cover crop stuff, you know, and part of... What kind of cover crops are you putting in? So <clears throat> it, it, it's always been a, uh, with, with one small exception, uh, a multi-species mix. Uh, and that was, a, that was part of, the, part of the, the FSA programs, the NRCS stuff. Um, when, I, when I knew that I wanted to make the transition, I knew I was going to make the transition, uh, you know, full stop, but was made aware that there were some, some programs available to, to help. And I know that there's uh, plenty in your community, and you yourself are not huge fans of, of FSA and NRCS. I get that. But 
uh, I found it to be very invaluable. Um, you know, in the in the transition and everything that I read at the time. You know, when you when you go from conventional tillage to to no till, it takes a few years to get the the ground used to it and nutrient cycling and all of the benefits don't come in the first year, right? Uh, of no till, and and that was certainly the case. Um, also, uh, to take a quick step back, if you remember, I picked the best time in the world to start farming uh, in 2013 and in 2012 into 13 and 14 was just a, a monster drought. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed when you drove in the yard out here, there's a, an artesian well uh, about 100 yards east of my back door. Uh, and it has run my entire life with two exceptions. One of those, it stopped in 2013 and it stopped now. I didn't know there was even an artesian well in, in this part of the world. I didn't know that existed. There are two within a mile of here. Interesting. And, I, and I've got one 100 yards east right here, right right at the corner out here is is a well that normally there's always water there. And, you know, in the winter, it's 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 always great because it's always fresh. You know, there's live water. And so we get all the birds and everything. Even when everything's frozen over, there's always water coming out. And so it's 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 great. Uh, this is the only the second time in my life that it stopped. It was 2014 at that drought. Uh, and right now, and I'm just crossing my fingers that it starts up again once we start getting more moisture around here. But um, uh, in, in any case, my point is that, you know, I was coming off of, you know, starting farming in a drought, which was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and and realizing that if I was going to make this transition to no-till, it was probably not going to be, you know, three or four years of record yields as I was trying to make this transition. And so I approached NRCS and found out that they had some some incentives in the EQIP and the CSP programs that I that I enrolled in, enrolled half the farm in, in EQIP uh, for three years and then the other half the next three years. And part of that, um, what I found beneficial, uh, you know, the, the, the payments were there as, as, as a supplemental, uh, which, which certainly helped in the, in the relatively low yields that I was having during the period. But what it did is, is made me better in forcing the, the, the cover crops. And, you know, you've got to do six species and it's got to, you've got to have this rotation on these acres and, you know, the, the, the forced rotation and, and the, the cover crop incentive that I signed up for, um, you know, I am, I'm somebody who's really good at execution. I'm not great at planning. <laughs> okay. And so, um, having that make me have a plan, Hey, it's on the books. It's on the program. I've got to do it. I'm going to do it. It got done. And uh, I don't know that my transition would have been uh, as accelerated and as uh, as well executed if it would have just been me without having you know someone else to report to, essentially. Um, Accountability is important. Yes, yes, uh, and and it certainly was was for me. And so um, having those resources there and somebody to talk to about. Uh, you know about the rotations and the and the the cover crop planting and and things like that was uh, I found it to be extraordinarily valuable. Now somebody with you know with a multi-person operation or having you know elders around for that institutional knowledge, you know maybe that's not going to be as nearly as important. But as a as you know a beginning farmer, uh, it was it was really useful to me. You know I was always really good at executing any task. Dad would say go go plow that field, go burn that, go fix that fence, whatever. But the why and the when. I never, never paid much attention to that. And, you know, I spent, you know. Be- after, because dad and grandpa did that. They always did it. And they always just told me what needed done. I got really good at doing things, which was really useful because I didn't ever have to worry about, well, how do I fix this combine? How do I do whatever? I could do everything. It was just as far as the the what to do and the when to do it that that I was, you know, so so terrified, you know, back in back in the early, 
teens and the, trying to figure it out. And the why of it. Right. You know, why do we which, do this? <laughs> why do we farm? Why do we hook onto this right. tool? Which which also, now knowing what I know now, uh, you know, about, about more sustainable practices, you know, I'm starting to question some of those, some of those why decisions, not all of them. You know, because they were operating with with what they had, and and quite frankly, you know, I know that Dad experimented with some with some alternative dryland crops, and occasionally ran some some fall crops, uh, but quite frankly, the the seed genetics are not near what they are now to be able to to raise any kind of a of a useful yield. Back in the late '90s, dry dryland beans over at Pixley, you know, which is a which is a uh, between here and, and Medicine Lodge, uh, you know, five bushels to the acre is all. All they could do, and I don't think that was necessarily his problem. But genetics come a long way since then. They have, and the, you know, so have the inputs. Might have to cut that one. That's a uh, <laughs> that's my wife. I thought I put this phone on mute. I oh no, we'll, we're going to leave that in. I don't think <laughs> I don't think you understand how lazy of an editor I am. <laughs> like we'll trim up the front. And maybe trim up the back, and if there's anything really bad in the middle, we'll take it out. I don't even have a notebook, so I'm not writing down any. Oh I don't even. I mean, I can't even see a clock, so it's not like I'm writing down timestamps, man. Like, no, that one will stay in. Very well. Um. So so circle back. I think, I think our ancestors, you know, the 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 farming elders. Um, you know, some are still around from, from your father and your grandfather's generation. Some are still around and some are still farming the way they've, the way they learned how to do it in the forties and fifties. And I think we got where we are because humans want an easy answer. We want the easy way out. Mm -hmm. And if somebody comes to us that we recognize as having authority in that area. So somebody from the university comes down and says, Hey, I'm from the university. We've done all this research and this is the good thing to do now. It doesn't matter if it's 1945 or 1995. It, it, that person coming from the university, they've done things like they know things. What they say is valid. So if they say it works, it must work when we've got to try it. And I think people are also looking for a silver bullet. They want the easy answer. They want the easy way out. They want the easy, they want to hear the easy lie and not necessarily the hard, complicated truth. Or they just want to have a surface understanding of, of something and know what the magic bullet is to fix that. Does that, does that, do you understand what I'm saying? I do. I do. I will, um, I will challenge that it's the, it's the person and not the, the idea that we, that we should look at. Right. Uh, proud skeptic that I am. I always keep it, keep an eye out or an ear out for, for logical fallacies. Right. And the argument from authority, uh, because so-and-so said it, it must be true is the, you know, that's, that ought to get your skeptical spidey sense tingling. Right. And so we, we use those authority figures to point us at the data that we can, that we can assess as to whether or not it, whether or not it works. So that's the only thing I would, I would, I would comment about that or. You and I aren't necessarily the, the norm. Either that, that, that is very true. We're not the meat of the bell curve that we're right. that I'm kind of trying to talk about right now. Um, but I, I think that like the vast majority of operators, they're just looking for an easy answer. Right. Like, oh, what's the best breed of cows? Well, Angus, everybody likes black cows. Okay, you know that's a good that's a good blanket answer. Is it correct? Most of the time, is it incorrect? Probably contextually, 
incorrect in places. So what do we what do we really need to be looking at? Well, okay, what's the best kind of cow? Well, the best kind of cow is one that fits your environment that'll raise a calf every year. Well, I don't need to know all that. Just tell me what kind of what what breed do I need to go buy? What fits that? And you know, we can keep trying to pile on layers of complexity and giving reasons and then like the average person keeps wanting to dial that back and say, no, just, just tell me what I need to do. Just, just tell me what I need to change. Um, I'm kind of thinking of like, there's an archetype of folks that go to like, go to grazing meetings, coffee shops, and you know, anywhere where there's interaction where they can ask a question from, from somebody kind of famous, like you'll have the one guy that wants to stop in the middle of the speaker's presentation and ask a very, very specific question that, They'll ask a very, very specific question, and what they're looking for is they're basically trying to justify everything that they're doing, and they just want the magic bullet that they can change to make everything work. Like, that doesn't exist. It doesn't, like, there's no magic bullet. We've, we've, we've piled on so many of these practices that, in theory, maybe like 80% correct, or would be 80% of what we should be doing. But all these practices that aren't exactly right eventually move us in the wrong direction and we want another magic bullet to put us back on track and i don't think it exists i think we've got to we've got to walk backwards to a point where where the easy answers are gone does that make sense sure <clears throat> maybe 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 not the the easy answer but yeah we have to have to take a, a general step back you know it it reminds me of an example you know when i was when i was first starting out um I went to a, a farm journal wheat school in, I don't know, north of Wichita. Ways I was still living in Wichita at the time. Um, Phil Needham was there. Uh, he's a, a big uh, consultant. He sells some planter things, Needham Ag. Uh, but he was he was giving a presentation, and, and the guy that you just talked about stood up in the middle of the thing and he says, well, well, how do we do that in our, in our program? He said, we're, we're, we're full tillage and we do this and this and this and this. And he just looked at him. He's like, well, the first thing you do is you stop tilling. <laughs> I didn't even didn't even hear the rest of his question because he was like, there's something that is so fundamentally broken in your operation that before you even think about the nutrient requirements or whatever, you've got to stop this part first. Oh, well, we can't stop that because if we stop that, then this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. Right. Like, no, you missed the entire <laughs> point here, guy. Just stop that practice. And right. then you don't have to worry about the rest of these things. And go do this other thing, and those other things won't be a problem. It's like it's like we are we are trying to take a, a branch in the road, and we need to back up six branches before because if we take the right turn back there, then this little branch we're concerned around down here we never get to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, you know, and and I can draw some parallels with that. Like, uh, you know, we can talk about antibiotic resistant bacteria Mm -hmm. antibiotic resistant diseases okay well we can't open that can of worms and not say that okay maybe there's antibiotic resistant diseases and pathogens in our fields in our food supply because we've overused these quote big guns like i'll just go ahead and say glyphosate um, you know, we've overused glyphosate. We overuse things like penicillin. We overuse things like amoxicillin. Um, and that and we're not even, let's not even talk about antibiotic use of feedlots and superbugs there. Cause that's like, that's a whole other can of worms that, uh, I don't really like getting into a whole lot. <laughs> sure. But 
you know, like, have we have we messed up some of these systems so much that the only way that they're going to continue is with synthetic inputs or that, you know, we just have to keep inventing nastier, nastier herbicides, nastier antibiotics to keep dealing with the superbugs that are evolving in nature because we're trying to kill them with ever more toxic chemicals. It's like, I feel like it's a never, if I feel like it's a cycle, that's just building on itself and building on its, excuse me, building on itself. And we're heading to a point where we're going to have weeds and bacteria and, and other environmental pathogens that have evolved super resistances to all the chemicals that we've developed to try to get rid of them. It's a biological arms race. Right. As we as to put it another way, exactly what you're saying is we as we develop new tools, nature finds a way around them. And so we need to as we continue that. And I'm not saying that we should stop looking for better, better pesticides or antibiotics or things like that. I'm not saying we should stop either. But we also, in my opinion, need to look at alternatives. Are there ways that we can reduce these inputs in, you know, and I, I, I. I'm a crops guy, yep. right? And so going back to going back to weed control, can we leverage cover crops to reduce the uh, the the herbicides that we need to to introduce? Can we can we look at um, you know there's some some interesting uh, interesting ideas that uh, that your podcast actually introduced me to anyway uh, in the context of uh, of fungus farming, you know in the you know the episode you did with Jay Young uh, about the bioreactor. Are there ways that we can rebuild the soil using, uh, using some, some fungus and reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizer that we, that we have to use to produce our crops? You know? And so um, you know, I think that there are alternatives. Uh, in addition to finding bigger and better tools, I think we can always keep an eye out for, for other ways to accomplish the same goal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, and you brought up fungus. I think it's fungi are, are are like key to the ecosystem, and I think fungi are one of the least understood parts of our natural world. Like we understand so little about fungi and how they actually work and work. Yeah, fungi. You know, they're getting up at eight o'clock, grabbing their <laughs> lunchbox, and going out. Yeah, no like the biological processes that happen inside of a fungi and how a fungi, you know, metabolizes the things around it to feed itself. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know. Like my, my dad always liked to say the, what we at 90% of what we think we know might be 10% correct. Those ratios might be a little bit off. And when I was 20, I didn't get it when I was 30. I didn't really get it. Now that I'm in my forties, I get it. <laughs> I get it. Cause it, it, it seems like every time we turn around, we're learning that, that something that we thought was true. Maybe it isn't quite true or maybe it doesn't quite work like that. And I'm also kind of thinking of uh, the Pareto principle. Have you ever heard of that one? That's the 80-20 rule, isn't it? The 80-20 yeah. rule. The 80% of your results come from 20% of your effort. And, man, if I take a step back from my operation and, you know, whether we're talking about the cattle, the grass, 
or even my work on the podcast, like that 80-20 rule, it holds up in <laughs> almost are, every case. Are you saying that 80% of your podcast episodes that your guests are uh, not as good as the top 20? That's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I'm well, saying. Well, as somebody who's going to probably post up in that in that 80%, uh, I, I will say that that there are there are definitely and and just as an aside breaking breaking the fourth wall or whatever i i couldn't be happier with with the 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 success that you've found with this it's it's very very uh, educational for me there's a lot that i have learned about it especially since since because your focus is generally on cow calf stuff and that is not in my wheelhouse and i have some uh usually have some some stalker cattle that we run around here but i am i have yet to uh, jump off the deep end into actually owning owning cows. Uh, I'm learning a lot from it, and I and I I can't thank you enough for the service that you're doing. Well, thanks. I I appreciate I appreciate that, and I I really enjoy doing it. And you know, there's times where it's where it seems like a lot more of a job, um, but it does it has taught me a lot of valuable skills, <laughs> <laughs> valuable skills, and it forces me to practice. Mm-hmm skills and stay on a schedule and right you know it's not like i record every wednesday right you know some week uh, this week we're doing i'm doing three Mm -hmm. i'm recording three i did one yesterday doing this one today and doing another one tomorrow um next week i've got two scheduled and the week after that they're probably not going to be one but i still got to maintain a release schedule so you know trying to figure out you know when i need to be gone when i need to take time or okay i can pound out I can pound out six episodes in the next two weeks mm-hmm. and then I can coast at one a week for a while. If I have anything come up in the, you know, anything come up in the schedule trip I want to take, I've got time. It's, it's taken a little bit to get there. I'm not always where I want to be. Um, I'll say that it's been, it's been quite a while since I've been caught without an episode. Yeah. It was probably, it was probably back down in the forties. Um, the last time I got, the last time I made it to Friday and realized I didn't have an episode for Monday. <laughs> and that's, that's an interesting, uh, that, that, that grind. I, I know that grind. Um, I, I, <clears throat> as an aside, I started my, I, I have a podcast history myself and, and did my first one in 2008, uh, is when I, I recorded my first one. I had, I used to be in the auction industry. I mean, I am in the auction industry, um, I used to do a lot of a lot of writing, a lot of blogging, and along with my my auctioneer tech blog, I started a podcast that ran from 2008 for for a few years. And uh, I originally had planned on an every week ep- you know episode release, and that uh, that quickly became something that was untenable for me. And so it really became a uh, you know whenever I want to, and whenever I have a good an interesting guest, or there's something I want to say, I would release an episode. And um, obviously, that is not the way to success in the podcast world, especially now that it has become such a competitive thing. There wasn't that many back in the uh, man. In, if you would have stuck odds. with it in two thousand and eight, <laughs> like Joe Rogan has like twelve million. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I think I might have had a hundred downloads once. <laughs> that's but that's it was, fair, but it was also very niche, right? It was, it was you know, technology for the auction industry. And so, you know, those overlapping Venn diagrams, uh, that's a, that's not a lot of people, but I had fun doing it and it, and it, it was something that was fun to try. I did, I don't know, 50 episodes there and then took what I learned and and started doing some podcast work for, for Purple Wave, my uh, employer, uh, and did, you know, another 50 there until, 
you know, some things had, had changed and that, that was no longer useful for our goals, but it was, it was definitely fun. And it taught me a lot about recording and editing and doing all of those things. And my point is that, uh, uh, I am very impressed that you are able to stick with it and do the the weekly release and and get them out on time. Well, well, thanks. Um, get them out on time. I missed. Re- <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because the one that just came out mm-hmm. um, this week, which would be a couple of epi- the first episode of twenty twenty three. I normally try to release have the release scheduled at four a.m. Central Time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I try to get that you know get everything edited done show notes written, have everything done Friday. So I don't have to worry about all the weekend. I can just, you know, have everything uploaded, have everything scheduled and everything done. I did the editing. I didn't schedule it. I uploaded it and I did not write show notes. So Monday morning I get up and I'm like, ah, all right, let's go do our thing. You know, go do morning routine, go down to the office, like, Maybe sometimes I'm a little bit obsessed, but I'd like to go down Monday mornings when I get up and check and see how many downloads I've had since, since we went live, I try to check again around noon and then I check again before I go to bed. And that's, that's my release day statistics. And I, I, I don't write it down. I don't have a chart anywhere, but I I keep it in my head. Right. So I like, by the time I get up, it's this number by noon, it's this number. And by bedtime, it's this number. Okay. And if we're within a few percent, it's a good episode. Sure. If it's really high, okay, maybe we got something going on. Maybe we ought to go take a look and see who else is sharing us. So I get up and I'm just, you know, kind of poking around. I'll admit I got up at like 845 Monday morning, nine o'clock. I make it down to the office and I hit refresh on my computer. Drafts. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> So I open it up. I'm like, oh crap. I never wrote show notes. So I'm down there at like nine, I'm down there at nine o'clock Monday morning, five hours after I should have released an episode, typing up show notes, got it up in just a few minutes. And, um, of course by noon, my Monday, my Monday crowd is already, you know, sending in messages on a discord server, send me text messages like, oh, great episode this week. I'm like, oh, well, okay. I didn't think it was that good, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> Oh, it's sometimes it's surprising to me, um, you know, some of the, the, the content like, you know, it, it, we're our own worst critic, you know, as content, sure. as content oh, creators. Yeah. And I, I can imagine like I never did any music because I could probably never stand to listen to myself <laughs> and how bad that I'd play or how bad I'd sing. That's probably why I never got into it. <clears throat> but there, there's there's some content that I put out that I'm just kind of like, ah. I'm not real excited about it. And when it gets well received by the community and my fans, that makes me feel really good. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's kind of like, why did I think that was crap? And everybody loves it. No, that's it. it, It's, and it's all in my head, right? It's, it's all in my head. And it's just some of these hang up, just a, I guess just my own personal hang up. I need to get over like, you know, this is good. People appreciate this. And even though sometimes it may me, might make me a little uncomfortable, maybe sometimes it's, it's extra work as it is. Um, it's worth doing. It's worth doing to hear things like, you know, like you saying, you're, you know, you're trying some stuff. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you. You said that, you know, I'm primarily focused on cow calf. Okay. I get that. Cause that's a lot of my paradigm. 
you know, grass fed, pasture finished, sure. cow calf direct to consumer. But I'd like to think that that I'm trying to provide different perspectives from across the industry about about problems that we're having, solutions that we're finding, and and niches that people are in. Like uh, the the last episode we did for 2022 with uh, my friend Tyler Dolly from uh, California. Did you listen to that one? I did. Fifty thousand chickens a year, pastured chickens. Fifty thousand pastured <laughs> chickens a year, and we barely talked about cows. So, and and you want to talk about a niche, like okay, pastured chickens. And and it, uh, we were talking about eggs earlier. I don't even know what chicken costs in a grocery store anymore because we don't buy it there. Like you know, we've got like thirty some birds out running around the yard, and we've got you know three freezers down in the basement, but full of cow and chicken. Well mostly cow <laughs> oh that's a it takes fun. a lot of chickens to fill a freezer i think yes yes it does and uh, you know fifty thousand chickens seems like a lot it really does but when we get down to pounds that's only a couple truckloads like how much how much land area does it take to raise fifty thousand chickens not as much as it takes to raise fifty thousand cows and fifty thousand chickens will convert oh okay let's back up so like on the scale of conversion you know from pounds of food to pounds of meat you know pounds of intake to pounds of meat on an animal chickens can convert it two to one right and you know and turkeys are in there ducks are in there you know they're like that two to three to one and then like you get up to uh to pigs pigs sheep goats they're kind of in that that three and a half four to one kind of area and then all the way at the far end is cows. And it takes seven, it takes over seven pounds to put a pound on a cow. And, and you know, we're, we're talking kind of like best case scenario. Right. So it doesn't, it takes a lot less area to raise chickens. Well, why aren't chickens more popular? Well, because it's a small unit. It's not a lot of production. And every, every animal requires a certain amount of labor so it comes down to how many pounds of protein can one human manage to produce from livestock and it seems like for the labor investment you get more pounds of beef per per labor unit investment like that's what it's that's what it seems to me then we run into a problem of labor because we both know labor is our biggest cost in this business like you know, you and I, we can afford to not pay ourselves a whole lot in order to make bills or in order to make a machine payment or in order to, you know, buy parts. Okay. You know, we can not take that for a while and say, okay, well, after we sell calves or, you know, after I get the wheat hauled to the elevator, you know, then I'll go ahead and I'll take that back pay. Right. We can do that. If you have somebody working for you, that doesn't work. <laughs> like they kind of want to get paid right. really regularly all the time yeah well don't you think that that i mean that's why we see such such uh vertical integration if i use if i'm using the term correctly in in swine and poultry because every animal takes you know more touches and so by confining them and and you know operating those numbers at scale is the best way to minimize labor costs right and so the pasture raised chicken is is way outside the error bars of standard industry practice obviously and so 
in order to market that, they're going to have to capture a lot more from the market to justify that high labor cost of putting chickens on pasture. Whereas, you know, with, with beef, we don't see that so much because, like you say, you can, you can run a lot more pounds of beef with, with a much smaller labor cost as compared to the other, the other animals. I mean, am I right? Yeah, okay. yeah I, I I think that's right. And, you know, we're back to this, you know, labor economics of food. I, I seem to end up here a lot for some reason about labor economics of food. And, you know, okay, so let, let's, let's stay on this chicken example. Okay, so we can raise a bunch of chickens in a pasture for not a lot of labor or we have a chicken barn. Now we got to get them processed. And... All, all modern processing plants, whether we're talking about beef, chicken, or pork, they're basically set up to run a specific size of animal like within a fairly narrow range. Mm. You know, that that's why, you know, that's why some, that's why some cattle that weigh 1,800 pounds get a discount and some that weigh 1,800 pounds get a premium. At, and it could be out of the same pen of cattle. It's just, where's that plant? Where is it going to a plant that's set up for 1,800 pounders? Or is it going to a plant that's set up for 1,400 pound cattle? Because if they're going to a plant that's set up for a smaller carcass, that bigger one's going to take a lot longer to process. It's going to take more manpower. And it's going to slow down their chain speed. If you send that big, if you send that small animal to a plant that processes bigger stuff, it's going to be the inverse problem. And they lose efficiency. So they want to keep those 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 very very narrow processing size windows and again it's efficiency and it comes down to labor it's the labor to to process and produce the food and you know we work for ourselves we set our own pay rate we set when we get paid which you know a lot of people would argue we both work for insane people <laughs> I, I won't contradict that because I know that I work for a complete lunatic. Like, I, I, I don't know why anybody would want to work for me. I mean, I'm, I'm crazy. But as, we, as, as you get into these processing plants, and we have to concentrate this, quote, semi-skilled or, you know, unskilled labor. Because we need to make that job as simple as possible. Because there's so many, so much of it. Like if you have 6,000 head of cattle going past you on a line every day, what, what do you have time to do? Make one cut, make one simple observation before the next one's in front of you. Okay. I get it. We got to be efficient. We got to feed the world. But when we take the, these, these line workers in a meat plant and we've been paying them $15 an hour. Okay. And I'm not saying that that's, that's a necessarily an adequate or inadequate wage. That's just the number. We're paying them $15 an hour. Okay. Well, now with the era, you know, the post-COVID era, okay, in the last two years, we've seen more societal change than in our entire life to date. Like, you, you got to admit that. In two years, so many things have changed. People are becoming aware about their food systems and labor has gone up a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the start of COVID, you had, I mean, minimum wage was, was like 10 bucks and people were going, oh, we need 15. We need 15. And within just a few months of that, oh, we need 25. We need $25 an hour. And 
the the whole essential non-essential worker bit. You know, who's really essential in the world? The people that grow the food, the people that transport the food, and the people that sell the food. I'm sorry, your job at Walmart selling TVs during the pandemic, you are non-essential. Like, it, it showed us what, sh- well, it didn't, it didn't show us. It should have showed us what, what matters in society and what kind of skills and what kind of people matter in society. You know, the, the people that maintain the power plants that, you know, the, the public works guys that maintain the water, the county guys that go out and grade the roads, like none of our shit changed. Like nothing changed for me during COVID. I am still, I'm still cranky that uh, all of, you know, musician friends and everybody got so much time during lockdown that they got to write music and play songs. And there I had to go back out to the tractor again because there was just <laughs> nothing changed for us. It just never ends, right? But then we get into these these big meat plants. And, you know, not even talking about, you know, the, the, the chickens or the pigs that had to be euthanized in, the, in their confinement barns. Horrible, horrible situation. But every step in this in the in the meat plant now, these workers are wanting a little bit more of a wage. Okay, fine. We got to pay people a fair wage. I get that. I get that. If that's what society wants, we got to pay people a fair wage. Now we're running into things like the price of chicken is going up. The price of beef is going up in the grocery store. Eggs. We talked about eggs earlier. Like eggs are eggs in a grocery store are kind of difficult to find. And when they do find them, they're expensive. And, um, uh, this is probably on last week's episode a little bit too, but so it's, it's a lag time, right? And we, we looked it up before the show and it was what three, four months ago that it was in the news about avian flu and they had to uh, like call another in, into November. So a little over a month ago. Yeah. 50 million chickens. I think yeah. is what it said. Chickens and turkeys. So then that, that creates a lag, right? So now here we are like 45 days later and we're starting to see, oh, there's egg shortage. There's egg shortage. And I know I talked about this uh, in the episode with Tyler about hatcheries and egg hatcheries. Like, okay, Tyler, you do 50,000 pastured birds a year. Where do you get your eggs? Well, they're all Cornish cross eggs and like there's just a few commercial hatcheries in the country okay well what if one of them has a problem like this is the problem with like a lot of concentration and centralization okay we've got millions of chickens and thousands of chicken barns and you know hundreds of pastured chicken operations but if they all bottleneck to basically two commercial hatcheries that everybody's getting their eggs from one of those has a problem and even drops a few percent of production that has supply chain ripples for two years across that whole industry segment. It's a big lever. It's a huge lever. And it's a huge lever. It is a huge lever. And I, I think that there's so many things like that, like, you know, the centralization of, of egg production, centralization of, you know, meat processing. You know, we saw with the Tyson fire, like, okay, that's not even 10% of the weekly kill. But you shut that one plant down and that affects everybody in the country's meat prices. Like, guys, we've, we've got to, we got to make some changes here. And I think that we're at a critical time 
you know, we're at one of those historical inflection points where we're either going to keep driving down this path of centralization and monopolization and having ultra big corporations concentrate things because of economies of scale. And that's going to continue. Or we're going to say, no, we need to maybe hold this level and, and start diversifying and start spreading this risk out. Right. So how do you, how do you do that? Without oh. without getting into politics, which is which is probably not where we want to go, how do you in in a in a free market society get there without some kind of government intervention saying, you know, you know, yes, we you know, we know you're a corporation and we know you have to return value to shareholders and we know that the best way for you to do that is to get bigger and to do all of these things and the mergers and the acquisitions and the whatever. How do you how do you say no? How do you hold that um that 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 diversity in the in the production marketplace. Who? I don't know, but I mean, it, as long as there's some government intervention, there's government intervention. Period. And I would make the argument that um, that government doesn't necessarily create, doesn't necessarily put a limit on the largest. On the, on the biggest, right? It, it, they don't limit the upper end of the size spectrum. But what government does is government will create a barrier to entry or a minimum economic size that, that's viable. Does that make sense? You're saying that that's what happens now or what they should do? Well, what happens now is, you know, there, there's a minimum economic size with, with, with anything that government comes in. Okay. Um Let's take your situation here and let's just like strip down to the basics. Okay. Wheat farmer on dry land. Okay. Okay. You get crop insurance, right? Yes. Okay. Back by the government. Yes. Okay. Can you, can you grow anything you want down here? Theoretically. You can, but. The... Could you grow tobacco here? Uh, unlikely. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe the plant won't physically no, grow but, here. But, but what, what I think you're getting at is that only certain types of crops are eligible for for the subsidized crop insurance in this right. area. Yes. Right. And even if there were more crops, there has to be a market for them. Right. Okay. So yeah, okay, theoretically you could grow tobacco here. Like just theoretically. Sure. If you want to grow tobacco here, you grow tobacco here. Where are you going to sell it? Right. Okay. You want to grow barley here. Yeah, at the Sharon Co-op will probably buy that. What what's something that that grows here that nobody'll buy? Well, and and you know, it, it, it's not even will nobody buy it, but is the nearest place that there is a market for it close enough to make it justifiable? For example, I did some you know running some math on uh, sesame, which is something that they grow a fair amount of down around Hazelton and and Kiowa. You know, they they grow sesame. For the uh, listeners, that's only about twenty miles away. Yeah, yeah, 20, 20 miles south, just right along the right along the Oklahoma border. It it is not an uncommon crop to find down there. Uh, I was doing some numbers, and then I think at least at the time I was running the numbers, the closest place I could take it was like Alva or something like that, which for the listeners is is roughly an hour from here, uh, an hour and a half with my trucks. Uh, and so uh, that was just not something I wanted to wanted to have to deal with. And so we are limited in you know, and there are plenty of producers around here who uh, you know self insure who don't need the crop insurance or whatever. I have some some 
reasons that I, I I need to ensure the things that I that I put out as much as possible. But but certainly plenty of people don't don't uh, don't leverage crop insurance. But then it becomes exactly it's a question of markets and you know what I can grow is limited to somebody that'll take it in driving distance. And the driving distance and that's the big thing, right? Like. You know, uh, 20 years ago, or even when you got started farming 10 years ago, mm-hmm. that driving distance was a lot less of an issue with two dollars diesel fuel. Now, with $4.5 diesel fuel, that driving distance has got to shrink because it's not like you're getting more money for your crops. Well, I mean, uh, that, that Propor- fluctuates. Proportionally it speaking. fluctuates, yeah. Proportionally speaking, like, energy is the most expensive it's ever been in relationship to food and labor. Like energy is as, as the most expensive it's ever been, but it's still way sure. too, it's still way too cheap. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, yeah, but I mean, w- when I started farming, I sold a lot of wheat at, you know, three and a half, four dollars you know, back in the, you know, not 2012, but in the, you know, a couple of years later, we, you know, at two and a half dollar diesel. And now we're looking at, you know, I don't, I didn't look at the board this morning, but you know, we're around $8 wheat right now. And so, you know, it's double and it, and it, and it fluctuates a lot of times together. A lot of times it, it diverges, but it's not quite as disparate as you're, as you're making it out to be as far as the proportions. Well, okay. I guess a, a different way to kind of look at it is how long do the ripple effects of high, of high energy cost and high grain commodity prices how long do those take to enter into the the global supply you know, the the food chain at large and to show up on the grocery store shelf right. so i mean i mean th- there's a big difference in what the loaf of bread costs that's made with eight dollar a week versus three and a half dollar a week right should be there should be and i don't think that there necessarily is and this goes back to the same the same people that take take value in the in the supply chain you know on the the grains and the commodity side is take value out of the supply chain i know that that the uh the packers is is frequently a a a foe for you and and probably would be for me if i knew more about it but i know that there's a lot of uh a lot of stress and strife in the in the cattle producers for the 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 doll the part of the dollar in the supply chain that is taken by the packers before it shows up on store shelves nabisco and mondelez and these other you know, multinational mega food corporations, they're doing the same thing to you that the big four packers are doing to me. They're doing all the value add work, telling you that you're growing a premium product, paying you pennies for it, and they're capturing all the premium in markets. Like that's 100% what they're doing. Like it is a good opportunity to say this. And I, I don't think I've said this out loud at least not on the podcast. So the Packers, they pay hamburger price for the for our steak quality cattle, okay? Then they take our steak quality cattle and export an awful lot of them. Whatever <clears throat> whatever is qualified to export, they want to export it because that's where they're going to get the highest premium. They're going to maybe take some of those leftovers, trim, that fat trim, throw it in the grinder to blend in with the animals that they're bringing in from overseas. In a lot of cases in the last couple of years, we're talking about Brazil, Nigeria, places that don't necessarily have the best human rights record, the best environmental record, okay? We're bringing in meat from them, 
throw it in a grinder, mixing it with our good fat and selling it as product of USA. Of course, it's all legal. Everything's on sure. up, up and up above board because it says USDA on it. But here's the point, like down in Brazil or Nigeria, you know, you, you think those herders in Nigeria are getting a fair wage compared to what I'm getting? Like, and importing that beef that's produced so far below my cost of production because Nigerians don't have to pay taxes. They don't have to pay $4 diesel fuel, right? They don't have to pay, you know, increasing land taxes because our county can't balance a damn budget. They don't have to pay that. They don't worry about any of that stuff. They live on like three bucks a day and that's great for them. I can't exist on those kind of wages. But the Packers seem to think that that's okay to do is to import meat below the cost of production because we've got to feed the world. We've got to feed the world. And you even said that. Let's be honest. Small farms, small diversified farms feed 70 to 80 percent of the world not big commodity operations like i drove past to get here like this isn't feeding the world what we're doing here i don't think necessarily qualifies as feeding the world why do we want to worry about feeding the world we can't even feed a community does sharon have a grocery store anymore no how i know i know that's come and gone in the last 15 years sure and, and, you know, small town grocery stores are kind of probably a losing battle now that Dollar General and Family Dollar exist in the world and are in the food business. Probably never see a grocery store in Sharon, Kansas again, unless it says Dollar General on the front. Which is also unlikely given the, the local population. <clears throat> I don't know. There's yeah. a post office here. <laughs> there's a post office here, which means there'll probably be a Dollar General before too long. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um. You know, and, and it's externalized cost in the food system. You know, we, we have a tendency to externalize all of our costs. And some of it's in the name of, of progress. Some of it's in the name, some of it's in the name of feed the world. Some of it's sure. just because this is how we, this is what we got to do to survive. And, you know, that we wouldn't, the American consumer wouldn't have to feel guilty about rainforest destruction in Brazil for animal agriculture if they ate pastured grass-fed beef. Like, we wouldn't have to worry about that. Like, that wouldn't be an issue if the American consumer changed how they wanted to eat. But instead of addressing the issue, okay, I, I realize I'll probably get some hate mail for this, but now let's just say Brazil, they're cutting down Amazon rainforest to grow corn to feed the cows. It sure. happens. Sure. It happens, people. Okay? And that that's that's what comes to mind when I hear them say slash and burn. And they're burning the rainforest for, for cows. Okay. They're not doing what I'm doing. They're not clearing a forest and turning it into pasture land and responsibly grazing cattle by moving them and, you know, restricting access. They're clearing the for they're clearing the forest to plant corn to haul the cows that are standing in a feedlot that are probably going to get exported here anyway. So, you know, a lot of the problem, a lot of the things that people are upset about with the environment can be solved from the bottom up with the change in how people spend their food dollar. 
but the education to get them to understand on, on the difference those food dollars make, like we just, we have to unpack years and years and years of consolidation and well, consolidation and, and government policy. So if, if in a market-based economy, it's the consolidation that makes food cheap, and we are expecting consumers to fix that by hold changing up. You, their buying habits. Hold up. I don't agree that food should be cheap. I don't either. I'm saying that it is because of corporatist consolidation in the food supply chain. And we want consumers to spend more money on food that is arguably better for them or at least better for the environment. How do we do that? Again, without government intervention, when all a consumer wants to do is go to the grocery store and spend the least amount of money possible when times are tough and they have families to feed, how do we do that? Ah, gosh, I don't know. I, I really don't know. And I think that's a question I've been trying to answer for, I don't know, what is this, probably 90-ish plus episodes, plus bonuses. That's always been the question on my mind is, is how, how do we get people to understand the cost of food? Not just the cost, not just what it's costing you out of your wallet, but what is the environmental cost? What is the social cost? You know, what are the long-term environmental costs of this food that is here because of this production practice? Like, it, 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 it's absolutely maddening to me to see the prices and, and some of the, quote, food that comes out of a place like Dollar General or Family Dollar. If, if you listen to Calicrate episodes or you, you, you talk to Mike Calicrate, he likes to say that Dollar General and Family Dollar are the vultures that show up to pick the last bit of wealth out of rural America. Like They show up to mine the last bit of wealth out of our communities. And they sell the truck wrecks. Like they sell the Walmart and Amazon truck wrecks and the rejects from Amazon and Walmart. And... You know, I, I remember when we got our Dollar General in Medicine Lodge, people were like, oh, it's great. We're going to have a Dollar General. It's going to be all these good jobs for the community. Wait a minute. You're going to tell me that, that six minimum wage jobs are good for the community? Like, wh and what are we selling in there? Nothing you can't get anywhere else at a higher, with higher quality that will last longer for a higher price. Okay, well, that's the problem. People need cheap stuff. People want cheap stuff. Cheap stuff doesn't last. I mean, my work jeans. It was a few years ago. I went to buy uh, these nice Duluth work pants, heavy work pants. I also switched to the, the Firehose Flex. Oh, they're the best pants, they're aren't they? They're so great. And they don't wear out. You know, I used to go down to the farm store and buy those key jeans for like 20, 25 bucks. Mm -hmm. They're good jeans. They last a year, maybe a year and a half. These Duluth jeans, yeah, they're four times the price. I have some that are eight years old that I still wear. So the, the cost-conscious, price-shopping American consumer, like, I, I think we get told a bunch of lies. You know, we can take five bucks 
<laughs> okay, we can take 50 bucks and we can go buy $50 of food at Dollar General. Go buy packaged crap in boxes with huge nutrition labels. Or we could drive down to Kiowa to the locker and buy $50 worth of meat. What's going to be more sustainable? What, what's, what's going to sustain us for longer? What's going to keep, how many days is that $50 of ultra processed crap at Dollar General going to get us versus the $50 of meat? Now I get that's like, we're comparing apples to potatoes, but I'm getting down. Like I want to talk about nutrient density. Okay. Now you're a wheat farmer. I remember when I was a little kid, when my mom would send me to school in like kindergarten, first, second grade. I had whole wheat sandwiches with thick sliced turkey and cheese that she cut off of a block. If I was lucky, maybe I'd get mayonnaise out of a jar. Okay. That was my lunch. That was my school lunch and an apple. Okay. No potato chips because they didn't exist in our house. Like I can't even remember how old I was when I first had potato chips, but I remember that they were awesome. <laughs> so I show up at school and I've got my turkey and cheese sandwich on whole wheat bread. And this isn't whole wheat bread from now. Like this is like early eighties whole right. wheat bread when it was like, it was real. It was really cardboard back then. Yeah. I mean, it had some texture, <laughs> like a piece of straw every once in a while, some chaff. <laughs> anyway, I remember coming home one day and asking my mom why we couldn't have white bread like all the rest of the kids. Cause it was so much better. Man, I'm like, I go, you go from eating a turkey sandwich like that and somebody wants to trade you like a couple bites of a, of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on white bread. You want, that's like, man, that was good. Sure. Candy bread. Candy. Exactly. So I go home and ask mom. So mom, why do we have to eat this whole wheat bread? Why can't we have white bread? And she explained it to me. She said, well... To make that white flour, they have to take the germ off the wheat, and the germ is where all the good stuff is. That's where all the vitamins and minerals are. Roger that. Understood. Then I remember seeing enriched flour, now fortified with 13 vitamins and minerals. I remember that when that came out. And now you can't find anything without enriched flour in it. Like all flour is enriched. So, and here, here's what I'm getting at. Okay, so we take we take the wheat that you grow. Okay, we're going to send it to the plant and we're going to mill the germ off of it. Okay, because the germs where all the nutrients are, but it doesn't mill well. And it creates some texture problems and it makes the flour a little bit darker. So let's get rid of that because we can always go get other vitamins and minerals and put them back in, right? Has anybody ever stopped to ask where the hell the, vi- the, the vitamins and minerals they enrich our food with come from? Do you have any idea? I don't. I don't either. That, and that's the miracle of food science, right? Do we really know what's in our food? What's in enriched wheat flour? What do they put in wheat flour to enrich it? And where do they get that from? Where what? do they... I'm sure those are questions that we could find the answer to with 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 a little searching or a, a a couple of phone calls, and so I guess I guess I don't I don't necessarily get 
um, get wound up about about that. I'm not saying you're wrong by any means, but it's it, that, that particular question isn't exactly something that that keeps me up at night. I'm not, I'm not saying it keeps me up at night either. I mean, <laughs> oh, trust me, there's a lot of other weird shit that I think about that keeps me up at night. This isn't one of them. Like AI taking over the world. Yeah, I right. w- maybe we could circle back to that one. Um, so it's like. Then the question I have is, okay, so where'd all this stuff come from that we're using? You know, where do we get the vitamins and minerals to enrich the wheat flour? Where do those come from? Well, I don't know exactly, but my logical brain tells me that that's got to be some kind of industrial process. Like that involves pumps and pipes and vats and, you know, big stainless steel machine, you know, stainless steel everywhere and computers and guys in lab coats going around because it's not like, you know... It's not like we can take a coffee bean and pull vitamin A out of it. Right. Like, I don't know how to do that. I don't think you know how to do that. Chemistry and efficiencies and things like that. But then then where does it come from? (laughs) I mean, how do we get it? Like, this is something that they just pull out of thin air. I'm sure somebody will write in and tell me, like, well, it's pretty simple. They just, you know, they get it from all the corn. Okay, maybe that's one source. I And I get that, you know, that ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, their business isn't selling corn. Their business is selling all the shit that they make from the corn. Like they buy the corn and they don't, they take everything out of it that they can, you know, they try to make plastics out of it. They try to make, you know, fuel out of it, whatever. I get it. I get it. But then I I start to wonder like, okay, if we don't know where these, where the vitamins and minerals come from that they're putting back in our food, how do we know they're bioavailable? I say that because I've seen this with cattle about bioavailability of minerals i used to use just uh you know bag mineral from from the local mill that i won't mention you know who you know what i'm talking about just a bag mineral Mm -hmm. minerals mineral right well i don't think all minerals the same i think there's a big big difference in bioavailability so i switched to c90 which i talk about on the podcast um, Kansas independent salt, it's another great product. Uh, Redmond's Redmond's real salt, very, very similar. Okay. And, and Steve Campbell will back me up on this, that, you know, that these ancient sequestered sources of salt, <coughs> excuse me, that these ancient sequestered sources of salt have, have the minerals have the correct minerals and the correct bioavailable ratios. Okay. And that's something that huh, I need to learn more of. Um, you know, as a as a side jag, uh, you know, the the whole Himalayan sea salt thing, there are humans who are thinking that this is somehow better than anything else and and uh, you know, or or some kind of a health food. And, you know, we know that at least in humans, the studies that I have seen, anything that's that's rigorous and, and meta analyses and those kinds of things say that that for humans salt is salt and that there's no increase in benefit from Himalayan sea salt over regular salt. Uh, and in fact, there are certainly some impurities and some toxins in there, though I, I question whether that's useful because the dose makes the poison, like we've talked about before, right? And if the... if the you know, Dihydrogen what, monoxide is poisonous. Of course. If whatever's in the Himalayan sea salt isn't good enough to help you, then whatever's in the Himalayan sea salt is probably not good enough to hurt you either. And so it's really just expensive salt that you're buying for humans. And so I, that, that is something that I have heard on your podcast about sea salt for animals that I need to go back in, put a pin in and go find some, some studies on. I, I almost wish I would have brought some, brought a little, little, uh, like 
little glass of C90, just loose salt. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, like, we threw Morton salt away. Like, it's it's not even in our house anymore. Because, like, the salt that you go to the grocery store and buy, you know, the Morton or the whatever in the the container that's iodized, well, that's pure salt. That's just straight-up sodium chloride. They take, you know, a natural sea, natural, natural salt, they evaporate it out and they separate it out and they mill it to where they have just sodium chloride because they don't want any impurities. God, we can't have any impurities. Well, what if it's the impurities that make it worthwhile? So, and there's, there's definitely a difference in tastes between quote table salt that you'll find at a restaurant and the C90 that we have at home. Or I guess technically Baja Gold is is what's on the bag, but it all comes out of the same plant. Is it bright white? No. Does it have a uniform crystal size? No. But it tastes different. How does it taste different? Well, it's still salty as hell. But I guess it's not as sharp. And 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 what does that mean? Well, I don't know. But I know that at almost every day for about the last week since I've had, had a sore throat, I've been mm-hmm. gargling salt water and drinking a little bit of it. And I'm not talking like just put a little bit of salt in water. I'm talking like I filled up the cup with salt <laughs> and then I put water in it. Had more of a paste to it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to bother me. It doesn't seem to bother me at all. I don't feel dehydrated. In fact, when I do feel dehydrated, I'll go take a little sip of salt. And then about a glass of water. And that makes me feel better than an entire bottle of water. I mean, when I say bottle, like, you know, big 24-ounce sure. bottle. I'm not talking, I don't drink plastic bottles because microplastics. But you get what I'm saying. I think there's there's something to bioavailability of minerals. And to, to tie this back in, so if we're going to go buy mineral for our cows, going to go buy a bag mineral product, whether we're going to go buy it at the farm store or go buy it at the feed mill. Okay. Yeah, their nutritionist says it's got everything that the cows need. Where does it come from? I mean, if it's not bioavailable, then it's going to bypass through the animal and it's going to sure. come out in the manure pad. And if it's, if it's still not bioavailable after it goes through the animal, it's not bioavailable in the environment to microbes, to fungi, or to plants. So that that's, that's kind of where I get to... Um, and that, and that also kind of ties back into, um, some of the things that Jay Young says or some of the things that, you know, were that a lot of the farmers that I, you know, hear and see on social media talking about, like doing the soil samples, like do a soil sample and see if you really need to be putting on those units of N or P or K. Absolutely. And, 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 and bioavailability exists certainly within (coughs) fertilizer as well not just not just you know nutrients into an animal but you know is the is the nitrogen in the soil available to the plant right or or whatever whatever nutrient is in context so you're absolutely right about bioavailability uh i just question uh the importance of the source you know you're you're looking at the end result you know is it bioavailable are these things there in my mind who cares where it comes from if the answer to the question is it available are these nutrients here for whatever organize, organism we are trying to nourish you know if if the answers are are satisfied in those questions i don't care where it comes from whether it comes from a plant in hutchinson or whether it comes from an ancient ocean 
doesn't matter to me. I mean, and and I can see that point. Um, and I guess kind of like the larger part of it is maybe some of these origin sources that we're using from to get, you know, vitamins, minerals, whatever, maybe they're not as bioavailable as another source that's maybe more expensive. I th- it, that's what I'm getting at is I think that I think that chasing profit has has pushed people to use some of these things that you know maybe are less bioavailable just because it's available from it you know because it's cheaper mm-hmm. and it's not bioavailable so the benefit that they're saying that it's giving us it's not 100% there may not be here's another question to circle back to call back to a previous part of this conversation is all of these enriched flour nutrients that they put back in the bread um what if those are more bioavailable than what was in the germ that got taken out? I don't know the answer to that, and it's probably the, the answer is probably no, but isn't that a question that maybe we ought to be, be thinking about is maybe it is more available? Maybe these nutrients are of a higher quality than what was taken out? It's possible. It's, it's possible. I would agree that it's possible. I, I, I will stipulate it's, <laughs> it, it, it might be unlikely, but that, that's, there you a, go. that's a question that we would, if we're going to throw a flag and say, hey, you guys are doing bad things to our wheat flour – uh, maybe that's something we ought to ask first. One hundred percent, one hundred percent, and I think you know it, it's very useful to try to ask that question from both sides, right. or from both ends, and try to attack. You know, see, see if there is a problem from both ends. And so now we get to the, now we get to why don't we know the stuff that we don't know? Okay, why don't we know the stuff we don't know? Well, where. Where do we learn all the things that we, we know about farming and ranching and about plants? Where do we get that knowledge from? University? Some. Some it, of it's institutional knowledge from, you know, our ancestors and, you know, the, the knowledge that's been passed down. Some of it comes from, from data, research trials. Some of it comes from charlatans who come out and say, hey, you guys should be doing this because I say so and because so-and-so next door has had success with it. Okay. Data and research trials. That's the one that I find particularly useful. Okay. Well, let, let, let's explore that a little sure. bit. So if you have a company that funds a study at a university, say, to control a weed, and that study comes out and they test five different substances against that weed, and the results that they put up clearly show that another company's product is more effective at control of that weed, but yet they recommend a product from the company that sponsored the study. I actually like, this is a specific thing and this is like, uh, okay. Old world blue stem. Mm-hmm. So old world blue stem, it's a, it's an engineered warm season grass. Um, and old world blue stem refers to a general family of grasses sure. um, that were developed in the fifties and sixties down in Texas. Um, one of them is called King Ranch Spar. I am sure that the King Ranch had absolutely nothing to do with the breeding and development and importation of this grass <laughs> at all. Um, then there's WW Spar, there's Caucasian, there's sure. yellow. There, there's, there's several different varieties. The, the two that we have here are primarily, um, yellow blue stem and Caucasian blue stem. Neither one of them are great. I have... I figured out how to deal with it, though, and we can circle back to that if we have more time. Um, so this was probably, I don't know, four, five, six years ago. We went up to Greensburg, 
or community center to watch this presentation on old blue stem. And the folks came down from K-State and they put on a great presentation. It had all kinds of slides. And the whole day was sponsored by Dow, who makes Roundup, right? So all throughout all the... Did I have that right? It, uh, it, whoever, Bear, Bear owns Monsanto now. Monsanto went away. Bear is the... Okay, it was... The, I, I distinctly remember that it was it was sponsored by the people that did glyphosate. Okay. Okay, because that's what they're recommending, is they're recommending glyphosate. Glyphosate, glyphosate, glyphosate. And I, I still have the presentation somewhere. And I can tell you for a fact that Arsenal worked better in all their studies. Like that's what their that's what their slides mm-hmm. were showing. Like you can't tell me that when you're showing 91% year one control and 94% year two and 96% on year three for Arsenal versus Roundup, which is down in the 70s for control, you're not going to sit there and tell me that you're going to recommend Roundup when I can read the chart for myself and it said the Arsenal was better and used less chemical. And even the even one of the slides said it was like a more cost-effective treatment. Well, that's what I was going to say is the only way that that recommendation might make sense is if the value proposition there, if if, if glyphosate is is substantially cheaper than Arsenal, and I don't know what the dollars are, but that's the only way that you could make the case that glyphosate is a better choice is if it's if it's more cost-effective. It didn't seem to be. Okay. And, and from application experience, it didn't seem to be either. And I can tell you, you know, since we're talking about it, guys, if you have old world blue stem and you go spray it, you can nuke it to bare dirt for three years and it'll still be there. Ask me how I know because I've done it. I've tried. I've watched cattle walk by it and not eat it. Then again, I've got a group of cattle on the ranch now that know how to use it. And in September when it was when it was good and palatable, uh, the couple paddocks that I had them in while it was while it was really attractive for them to eat, man, they ate it to dirt. I was going to say there are people around here who buy it and plant it. You I know, w- there are there are there are I, I know of at least at least two people uh, who who drill it and and actively cultivate it because their cattle like it so much. I wish they would not do that. I know that, <laughs> and I know that NRCS doesn't want them to do that either. I know it's it's I think it's listed as a noxious weed. Yeah, that happened in the last uh, in the last couple of years. It got listed as a noxious weed. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can. I mean, you're not supposed to import any into the county you're not supposed to import the seed into the county Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to plant it not supposed to i mean there is a long list of shit i'm not supposed to do that i probably do every day (laughs) sure sure you know and we could we could we can name names after we're done with the podcast and 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 talk in in more specifics but i i i find it interesting that 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 particular uh cultivar is is so widely hated by a large group of people and so widely loved by you know an admittedly smaller group of people but they swear by it Saying that it is much more hardy than the the big air quotes native grasses that are you know would normally be growing around here. Well, it is more hardy. I mean, I one hundred percent. It's more. It's it's a more resilient grass. Like drought, it doesn't even care about drought. Like it doesn't care if it's wet. It doesn't. It doesn't care if it gets overgrazed. I mean, it's gonna the old world blue stems that I've got experience with. They kind of succeed no matter what. Okay, succeed. What's the definition of that? They increase their volume in the pasture. Right. But that's not the right metric. Okay? I have a grass ranch. I'm trying to make a living selling pasture-finished cattle direct 
pasture-finished beef direct-to-consumer. And from everything that I've seen, heard, and read, it's not as good of a grass. It doesn't have the protein, the fat, the nutrient balance in it that my native, my native plants do. So I'm in a situation where, because I want to stay all natural, you know, the programs that I'm in and like, I know I've been saying, I've been on, I'm the quote, the programs I'm in for a while on the podcast that I haven't been able to talk about them. Guys, we're so close. I'm so close to actually getting some of these certifications I've been working on for a while. I'm so close to being able to talk about them. Like it's, it's been a process. Um, but in order to qualify or, you know, qualify for some of these programs, okay, like I can't go out and mash treat areas with herbicide. Can't do it. Mm-hmm. Have I done it in the past? Yes. Yes, I have. I've sprayed brush. We've tried to spray old world blue stem to death. And I've watched it not work, which is why I don't do it anymore. And um, like the, the sumac that I used to go spray. You used to think that was a problem and you used to want to go spray it. Well, now it's not a problem because in the winter time, I get a lot of cool season grass that grows up underneath there. And my bighorn cattle, they go into those, they go into those sumac thickets looking for that cool season grass and those forbs that grow this time of year and they tear up and they thin out those sumac grows. So when we come back and graze them next year during the growing season, there'll be more grass under it because the cattle have been through there in the dormant season and open up the canopy cover. They've gone in and tilted up with their hooves. They fertilized it with their manure and their urine. So I'm like, okay, that's not that big of a deal. Old world blue stem. We're still working on how to get rid of that or how to make that, you know, stop taking over areas. Um, I tried overgrazing it. I put a hundred thousand pounds per acre of stock density on it for a day. And you want to talk about like, something looks a little gruesome <laughs> you put a hundred thousand pounds of stock density on anything out here for a day and yeah. see what you're left with it'll be dirt that's fine you just got to make sure it has plenty of rest and recovery and rainfall before you come back and graze it again so I, i'm trying to work on biological controls and the the less that i have in my mind to rely on on a jug on a chemical the longer it takes to get results but the happier i am with those results does that make sense sure like i i think that there's like soil health soil health and fire are two things you can't go to the farm store and buy a box of and they're two things that take a long time to pay off they're two things that take a long time to see benefits of in a management change if you want to see something fast, go buy a jug. If you want to see something slow, maybe maybe don't go buy that jug. I think that's fair. You know, and it, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, you know the the arms race and can we look for for better better solutions? And here I'm going to talk about my my skepticism again and something that I frequently hear in this community of regenerative ag and and all of that is the uh the appeal to nature fallacy right one of the one of the fallacies is the you know the naturalistic fallacy wherein we say that uh because it is natural it is better which is you know relatively logically inconsistent uh it may be that that's the case but it it isn't a reason in and of itself and maybe the nature we're observing 
is a is a manipulated system and has been has manipulated or interfered with to the point that it no longer represents what it once did mm -hmm. does that make sense it, it it certainly does it certainly does and we we obviously change nature over time um but but my my point i guess is that just because it's the way that uh it always was before it was untouched by man um isn't necessarily the the best and most efficient system although a lot of times they do line up that's not a reason in and of itself and so a a lot of the a lot of the speakers in in you know certainly soil health and and uh, you know uh, who's the Ray Archuleta I think is one of the one of the guys and I absolutely love a lot of the things he says but he falls back on that because that's the way nature did it and so we have to go back to that and that's not logically consistent in my mind uh, that's not a reason in and of itself I'm not saying that that everything he says isn't right as far as what he what he advocates but the reasoning. That, that naturalistic fallacy almost becomes religious sometimes in nature that uh, because that's the way it that nature did it it's just not a reason a, a useful reason for me to want to change something yeah if that makes sense yeah I, I get that and you know I I love Uncle Ray <laughs> that guy has so much energy oh goodness yes and have you been to a conference where he's speaking I yet? have not I have I have just seen you know videos. Well, be prepared to do calisthenics. <laughs> I think I heard that. I think somebody was talking about that, that he makes you makes you stand up. and. <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I mean, you know, you, you get a couple hundred people that are used to being active all day out, you know, walking fences or walking back and forth to shop, and you put them in a conference oh, yeah. room all day. Yeah, when Ray says, all right, everybody get up, put your arms over your head and do jumping jacks, you get some funny looks, but... Um, <laughs> I'm going to be one of those people that's that's probably leading that exercise because I know that I need it. You know, a little bit of you know getting the blood moving sure. kind of helps the brain brain function. But Ray, yeah, the the manipulation of our environment and and what is natural, what is real. You know, several years ago, folks were talking about okay, yeah, the bison. We'll just you know we'll just take out all the fences and bison will fix fix the problems. I don't think so. And uh, so here's a thought that I've been working on for a while that I, I don't think I've said. I don't think I've articulated all this on the podcast. Okay. So you all have heard me talk about beavers. Mm -hmm. That if we turn the clock back to 1750, that there were like 600 million beavers on the North American continent. Like, I can kind of see what that might have looked like on my ranch. Like, I can see where the historical beaver dams would have been and, you know, roughly how much water there is. Like, trying to apply that to a, to an area much off the ranch is just beyond my mental capacity. I wonder if I could make chat GPT write me an algorithm to show it. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a pin in that one. Okay, so we came out and we trapped all the beaver out of the plains. Well... They create a lot of ponds and a lot of rivers. How much did that restrict the movement of the bison? How much did extirpating the beaver, what effect did that have on the bison population? Okay. Now, look, let's get even wilder than this. Okay. So, we'll turn the clock back to 1491. Pre-European contact. And... 
I, I haven't actually read this book, but there is enough evidence out there that between 1500 and 1600, that there was a mass depopulation of this continent because of European disease running through the native population. Okay. It's starting to be supported more and more with archeology. span You know, the, that big city they found over by Ark city, Arkansas city, like 15,000, a, a city of 15,000 native Americans living on the banks of the Arkansas river. Like when we were kids, in school, that wasn't taught. The people here were nomadic. There were no towns. I mean, they chased the buffalo up and down the plains. Okay, fine. So we're finding that there were, you know, big civilizations. And we're understanding that there were these big, huge, complex, advanced civilizations in North America before 95 to 98% of them died within a span of 100 years. Now, we haven't been through it. But I can guarantee you that if 95% of your people die in less than 100 years, your civilization collapses, you lose all of your institutional knowledge, like everything is done. Like you're down to scattered bands that are just trying to rove around and make a living, which is what we started to find when the Europeans came back in the late 1600s and 1700s, a pretty much an empty continent. Okay. So we found an empty continent. It was full of beaver. People in Europe wanted beaver hats. So we get rid of them. And now we've got all this open land out in the West that people want to come out and, and settle in just right where we are. What was it full of? Comanche Indians and bison. We had to get rid of the Comanche Indians before we could settle this area. I mean, we're, we're like right on the eastern edge, probably the northern end of the Comancheria, where they exerted their influence. And a great book about that is Empire of the Summer Moon. You've heard, have you heard about that one? I have not. Great audio book. Uh, Joe Rogan talks about it. I talk about it. It's, it's, a, it's a great book, and it'll act, it could give you some insight into some of the history of this area and, and what things were like. And mostly it has to do with like the, around the Llano Estacado and down into down in Texas, Texas Panhandle. Okay. And mostly it talks about, uh, it's, it's also the story of Cynthia Ann Parker, which is one of the last white women that were abducted by the Comanches. And she went and lived with the Comanches. And I think she got rescued and, and it's a good book. Um, so I, th I think about like gross effects on the ecosystem. Okay. So when, European disease depopulated the American continent, 95, 98% of the people. Okay. Even if it's half the people, it doesn't matter. The point is you depopulate that many people and the things that they're using for their food source no longer have that pressure on them mm -hmm. instantly. So here's something kind of wild to think about. Okay. What if in 1550, what if bison were in decline and then all the native Americans that were over harvesting bison started to die off. So then the bison population rebounds a couple hundred years later, more white people come through and they take out all the beaver, which drains all the beaver ponds, drains all the rivers, which, uh, were probably very likely quite a few of them barriers to navigation for bison. Ah, 
What do you mean ponds are barriers to navigation for bison? Imagine the Medicine River from the Salt Flats all the way to Belvedere being a quarter mile wide. Do you think that was a barrier to navigation for bison? You would think so. 100%. So then we get up into the 1870s. 1873. We've got General Sherman, Civil War veteran. Sherman's marched through the South, burned the South. He knew how to win a war. Yeah, he did. He I, he knew how to screw up a, a civilian population. I have a my my sister for Christmas got me a T-shirt with General Sherman on the front and says, "I'm the reason country music is so sad." <laughs> <laughs> there is one of my favorite subreddits that is uh, Sherman posting where they 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 idolize him and and while while I will support anyone who was that aggressive against the Confederacy, uh, he did some pretty pretty rough things to the Native Americans, and so he has a very mixed history. Well, I mean, he was smart. He knew he couldn't beat the Comanches in a straight-up fight. He knew he'd get his ass kicked. I mean, let's face it, a guerrilla warfare out here in these hills? Yeah, I wouldn't want to fight that battle either. Yeah. And he knew the way to get rid of them was to get rid of their food supply. So that's why we kill all the bison. So I guess to wrap all this up and put a bow on it, did Sherman do the bison a favor? By ordering their extermination because the bison, through the last 400 years of human influence on the continent, were the bison overpopulated and heading for a population crash because of, there wasn't any, because of lack of hunting pressure on them. Lack of any predators. Lack of any predators. Interesting theory. Sure. And we'll never have any idea if if I'm anywhere close or not, which I think that's fine. It's fun to think about though. That is. It really is. And it, and it, I guess that circles back and, um, you know, we, we can kind of go ahead and wrap up. That circles back to an earlier point that I made, like 90% of what we think we know might be 10% correct. Can I chase you down another rabbit trail here before we wrap up? Oh yeah. Just yeah. One question here. Yeah. Um, since <clears throat> I seem to be, be good at getting you, getting you to talk here. Um, yeah, we're going to have to do more of these yes. because like, I, I usually don't talk a whole lot. Well, and, and, <laughs> yes. And I, and I'm, I like to, I like, like I told you when you first asked me if we could record this, I said, well, I'm really, really used to being the one asking the questions and, and just listening. And so, uh, I have, I have learned a lot and, and enjoyed our conversation, but, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And this is something that I think about, uh, quite frequently in the context of me and my cattle operation, such as it is, and looking at expanding into, uh, cow calf eventually and things like that. Uh, but as far as the, uh, the, the long-term sustainability of, um, the cattle industry writ large, uh, in the context of meat alternatives. And, um, you know, I will, I will stipulate to pretty much everything that, uh, that, that has been said on your podcast and within the industry about, um, you know, not, uh, not being nutritionally equivalent uh, at the moment and maybe not having the taste right at the moment and being expensive at the moment. Um, my question for you is this, um, all of those things are at the moment. And don't you think our, uh, fancy Dan food scientists are going to be able to figure those three things out. And at some point in the next decade, isn't it possible that a consumer will be able to go to a store and, purchase something that is nutritionally equivalent and is 
that does have the taste and the mouthfeel and all of the the experience of beef and or meat or whatever they are trying to approximate. And and this is the important one because of that consumer pressure on the uh, you know the the lowest cost food. Once the meat alternatives are eighty percent of the equivalent natural meat product, how does the 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 animal agriculture industries how do they survive through that? Ooh, okay. So there there's a bunch to there's a bunch in there to 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 unpack. Right. Okay. Am I worried about fake or synthetic meat? Long term, from where I stand right now, no. And so let let's break this into two into two kinds of synthetic meat. You have the lab grown tissue, mm-hmm. okay, which is like it's it's actual beef. Right. It's it's beef cells grown Culture. in a lab. Yes. yes. Okay. And then you have the plant based, you know, impossible the imitation. Impossible yes. foods that, you know, have soy lech hemoglobe that make it look like it's bleeding. Okay. Right. So let let's take a look at each one of those. So first off, let's take the the, the impossible foods, the plant burgers. Okay. So they're gonna make these with what soy protein isolate and a bunch of other stuff. Okay. A lot of soybean products, a lot of plant products. How are we going to grow those? Okay. So we need to get, and and I have a point here. So we need to grow a bunch of these soybeans, special soybeans to make special plant burgers. Okay. Or maybe they're just run of the mill, damned old soybeans that everybody around here grows. It might very well be. It doesn't matter. Right. We're still talking about a monoculture that's likely with the soil destroying practice, likely with herbicides, pesticides, fungicides in order to get that crop to grow to maximize yield right then we're going to take those soybeans transport them to a plant use another energy intensive process for first order extraction and there's another couple of those processes right it's not like they just take the soybeans grind them up and you know now we have a plant burger we've got to take the soybeans they've got to go through a couple industrial processes probably some kind of reactor a bunch of chemicals process 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 to finally we get to a patty okay Okay, let me let me let me take one right here, right while we're on it. Don't lose your train okay. of thought. But you're you're assuming that we are requiring additional plant commodity grains to to do this. Not um, not necessarily additional. It okay. just requires so some if, of them to if, be. If if beef specifically is a seven to one feed to gain. Okay. I see where you're going. What if we substitute what we're feeding cattle, and take all of those grains that we're putting into livestock production? And use some of those in these other processes. Is are we still seven to one inefficient in the production of these? And mind you, we're on the same team. Yeah, I it's going to take talk. It, it's going to take more but, of an analysis. Sure, sure. I'm just saying that 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 saying that these are these are bad grains that come from bad sources. We're already making grains that come from these sources and feeding them to livestock. If we feed them directly to humans, doesn't that increase some efficiencies there? Efficiency where? Because it comes down to the energy balance. Everything at the end of the day, it's got to come down to the energy balance. Calories in, calories out. Calories consumed, calories produced. Okay? I don't have the math. I am not smart enough to come up with the math to be able to tell you I consume X number of calories of energy of of everything in my production process in order to produce Y calories of beef. Sure. I can't do that. Okay. I know that industry wide, 
we burn 15 calories to produce one. That's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Okay. At the end of the day, it's the energy balance argument in the meat, which is why I don't think fake meat will ever win. Will ever be more than, than a small niche because the energy balance just isn't there. And so I said that I'm a pasture finished direct consumer guy. Right. Okay. My energy balance, my energy consumption to put that pound of meat on my customer's table is fairly low compared to the energy required for an animal that's lived in a steel corral on concrete, drank pumped water, and had every bit of food hauled to it for two years. Oh, well, I didn't pay much for those DDGs. Yeah, well, you live next to an ethanol plant and you didn't pay much for those DDGs because the taxpayers already paid for them twice. So the energy balance for fake meat, like the plant-based meat, yeah, we can talk about conversion ratios, but let's talk about the energy required to raise that cow from birth to slaughter. And let's talk and, and how many pounds of meat that's going to yield us. And then let's look at the energy required to make that many pounds of plant burger. Of impossible burger. Let's look at those energy requirements. Even if we go to the other end of the extreme from my system and go to the feedlot system that I just described, where that animal's live a whole life stand on concrete and a steel pen, getting every every bite of food it ever needs hauled to it. I think the beef still energy balances out better than the plant burger. Now, we can talk about the cultured meat burgers, okay, mm -hmm. that are real meat grown in a lab. The dirty secret they don't like to tell you is they can only grow that in a lab by using a lot of what they call uh, bovine growth serum. Okay. Where do we get bovine growth serum from? Sure. We get bovine growth serum from cows that are carrying calves in utero when they go to the slaughter plant. I bet every vegan and animal rights activist mind just exploded right now because they think that by eating these alternative meat burgers that they're saving cattle, that they're giving them a better quality of life, that they're saving the environment. I'm sorry, that's not the case. Because it takes a, an extreme quantity of this bovine growth serum to grow just a tiny little bit of meat. like, And it's a ridiculously expensive process. It was and this bovine growth serum is in such high demand that I, okay, anecdotally, I heard of more than one plant paying $150 to $200 premium for bred cows to slaughter. Oh, wow. So they could harvest the bovine growth serum and sell it to these fake meat companies. Normally, it's a $100 discount if you send a bred one of the, if you send a bred killer cow in. Mm -hmm. Well... The guy that sent him in, you think he got that premium or do you think he got the, do you think he got the $200 premium <laughs> or do you think he got the dock? Yeah. I can tell you right now, he got the dock and somebody else pocketed that premium. So I guess. So it, it for me, it's the energy balance, Aaron. I right. just, the energy just doesn't balance out. And it's, it's, it's really hard from an energy balance point of view to compete with a pastured finished system. So I am I am absolutely on board with your pastured finished system 
philosophy. I, I, I don't disagree at all. Uh, and that's, that's the, not that I, I am learned enough in any of this to have a crystal ball, but if I would, were to look in the future, that's where I would see that the, the long-term persistent value uh, in animal agriculture is being able to leverage some kind of economic return on uh, on pastures, places, especially out in the Red Hills, um, that you, you're not going to have cropping agriculture in most of the Jeep Hills. Um, if it was flat enough to farm, they've already farmed it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And exactly. they're still farming it. Uh, and so that's the only thing that I can, can say that, you know, gosh, I hope there's going to be animal agriculture in, in, you know, just so that I have a way to gain some kind of financial return on on my pastures the the places that 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 I have that 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 I that I rent that don't have the ability to be cropped uh but uh as far as the I I sure think that there will be a time in the next in the next while where you're right there's there there energy energy balance challenges but uh in the 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 vegans and the people who have a a, a moral or an ethical challenge against animal agriculture are probably going to opt for the imitation the the plant-based substitutes which i can only predict will continue to improve and at some point will be you know close to indistinguishable and better on the on the nutrition side you know could be superior to beef in in nutrition um you know and again i come from a family of of beef production here and and it's it's certainly near and dear to my heart and i i will continue to participate in it, you know, going forward as long as I possibly can. But that's the fear that I have is that at some point soon, the cost to the consumer, and that's really what we're talking about in a market-based economy that we have and, and consumers going to the grocery store to buy groceries. You don't think that Dollar General is going to have cheap meat, you know, next to real meat that's going to be a lot cheaper, that customers going to turn them both on the, you know, look at the nutritional labels that are going to be on there and they're going to make a a pocketbook-based decision to find something that's going to put the calories on the table where, you know, gosh, maybe maybe we'll have the real meat for Christmas and, and Thanksgiving, and, you know, that's going to be a, 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 a treat. And if it's nutritionally superior, is it even a treat? If it's just a, you know, a nostalgia play for back in the days when we used to eat real meat, like that. That's the part that that scares me for for animal agriculture going forward is at what point is that tipping point where it becomes cheaper and more nutritious and more efficient to have the the alternatives than it does the the actual meat. Again, it's you know I'll I'll just fall back on my on my energy balance mm-hmm. question and and you're talking about the the global not not global as far as the world but as far as as opposite local right uh the all-in amount of energy to produce that meat product yes okay yes yeah. like cradle to grave i mean right and and it, it's it's difficult to wrap your head around because i think that i i'm not going to claim to have a complete transparent understanding of it and i don't think anybody does but you can i, I can see problems with that energy balance you know we have we have very few things from nature that we can harness and we and we can do a lot to screw them up okay we get sun we get rain there's plants that grow there's animals that eat those plants and that's i mean it's almost free right i mean if we if we take away Mm -hmm. our civilization structure 
Okay. If we take away all, all of our bullshit economics and dollars and all that system. And I guess to even some extent, we, we, we rethink what we think about private property and land rights ownership, right? Everything is free. Everything belongs to us all. And these resources are all shared that we should, you know, somehow, you know, manage them together for the long term, right? But that's a fallacy. I mean, it's well documented the tragedy of the commons. You know, at some point, there has to be somebody saying there are limits. These are the things that we're not going to do, or these are the things that we're going to do in order to preserve this for the future. Because if humans were just left to our own devices, I don't think you'd like the kind of world that we'd end up with in very, very short order. I mean, look at some of the third world countries and, you know, the pollution policies. And and I, I'm thinking of a place that it, uh, I just watched a video on in Indonesia. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's an open air garbage dump. It's a landfill. And it's like a, it's a, it's a six acre site. And just say it's like a six acre site. And they have a thousand dump trucks a day bringing in garbage. And it's not like, you know, we have here where we'll send out dozers and and paddle scrapers to go dig a hole and put that dirt somewhere else. And we'll line it with clay and line it with a liner and start putting garbage in and compacting it. No, this was an old rice field. They leveled and started stacking garbage on. And now there's a garbage mountain hundreds of feet high. They have to have a chain of excavators. Like they dump the garbage at basically ground level and they have this chain of excavators that just bales the garbage all the way up the top of the hill. Now, here's the really scary part. There are people in there on the garbage dump right there where the trucks dump and their job is to sort through the garbage to find the things that are recyclable, the plastics. They get the food out to feed their family. They pick bones out and sell the bones to craftspeople that make bone crafts. Okay. We don't think of Indonesia as necessarily being in the third world. We think of Indonesia as, you know, having, you know, big cities and glittering lights and, you know, civilization. Guys, the harsh reality is that is a very, very small portion of the world. And we're very lucky in this country that almost all of us live above that standard. Oh, sure. When you've got, you know, we externalize costs like that. You know, we externalize costs in our food system by taking, let me back up. Food's only cheap because labor's exploited. I would generally agree with that, yes. And if there's cheap food somewhere, that means that there's there's exploited labor somewhere in the value chain. and Or fiscal policy that exists to keep it cheap for political or other reasons which you know it's it's still the same argument sure it's still the same argument you know so like, <laughs> or both of those things can also be true simultaneously yeah ah oh, man what are we two hours in yeah now we're just getting now we're just having fun now we're just getting rolling um but like i, I look at a beef plant okay because they're around and you know, we can drive through dodge city garden city and drive out to liberal okay What are those communities like? It's not a high standard of living. You know, we, we've taken, uh, we start off by talking about, you know, some of the history of Barber County and agriculture. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to have a meat plant here in Barber County. We're, uh, we're getting one built again in Medicine Lodge. 
Did you know we're getting a meat plant back I in did. Medicine Lodge? We, we have one in Barber County. I mean, Kiowa Locker exists. And they do a good, you mean in Medicine Lodge? In Medicine Lodge. North, I, North Barber County, yes. I forget about Kiowa. Don't forget about Kiowa. I, well, you're, it's right next door know, to you. I'm in the other corner. I know. Like, Kiowa's a long ways away from Sun City. I know. I know. Um, but, okay, yeah, so we do have a meat plant sure. in the county. We're about ready to get our second one. And so w- what we did through the 80s, Right after the beef checkoff, when every small town in America, every 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 town in Western Kansas used to have a meat plant. Coldwater had one into the late nineties. Uh, I don't think Protection had one. Mead has one again. Ashland used to have one. Greensburg used to have one. Okay, they all went away in the eighties. Why'd they go away? Consolidation of the industry. Right. You had the big players come in and start buying up plants. You had you know had IB. I'm not, I'm just going to shut up because Calicary will call me tomorrow and tell me everything I said was wrong, but you had a lot of consolidation in the beef industry. So you had guys like, you know, that were running the plant in medicine lodge. He was retirement age. Nobody's wanting to buy it. Nobody's coming up with those skills because all those skills we've, we took what should be somebody that's respected in the community. That's a highly skilled worker, the butcher. We took that and replaced that with a guy on a line with 6,000 animals going by a day and he makes one cut. We took that, we took one high skilled job that was well respected and we split it into four minimum wage jobs. And we're calling that progress. I don't see it. I just just don't see it. You know, I think that if we want to make some real progress, we need to start talking about local food a lot more and we need to rebuild our local food economies. Okay. Is that going to change the feed the world narrative? No, it's not. Is it going to be, I don't think we're ever in our lifetimes. We're not going to see all the land between here and medicine lodge. That's, you know, currently in commodity crops. We're not going to see that refenced off. For livestock grazing. No. I mean, we'll be lucky if 5% of the land between here and there eventually gets animals returned to it to return their fertility to it. Like, we're not talking about like a huge, huge, massive change in the industry. I think we're going to be seeing small incremental changes, but the small incremental changes, they have to come from the bottom up. The thing that I wonder if we're, if we're paying close enough attention to, there's a, there's a, uh, a book that I listened to in, in 2019, um, and, and it's – I know that you have some, some thoughts about you know, pending economic collapses. I've heard that on previous, previous <laughs> issues of your podcast, and I don't know about the, the, the economies, but there's a book called Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming by Davis, David Wallace Wells, uh, and it really puts into, uh, into stark colors the um, – the, the, the rate of climate change that I don't think anybody's paying attention to. You've mentioned Indonesia. Uh, I think Jakarta is on track to being completely underwater by 2050. Um, you know, we're talking about. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's not very far in the future. No, <laughs> no, it's not. And that's, that's the thing is that, um, you know, we, we're, we're really looking at a world that, that our children are going to have some, some troubles living in. Um, and, and all that to say, and I don't want to go off on a big climate change thing, but my point is that, um, you know, they think that there's an immigration challenges that we have now, 
what happens when we're looking at, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are living in places that are underwater in 30 years, in 40 years. And what does that do to our, what I consider the, the, the luxury of being able to have good quality meat products that wherever they come from, whether it's pastures or whether it's the, 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 the feedlots or whatever, we have an ample supply right now. There's generally, we're able to find meat on the, on the racks, but what happens when um, we are trying to feed people, you know, just meet basic calorie requirements and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the crop production gets diverted from feeding animals to feeding people, you know, will that happen? And what does that do to the nature and complexion of the uh, food supply chains? Ooh. I mean, there's a there, there there's a lot that happens there, and when we look at you, just can't help yourself from opening more every. <laughs> I, I told you, I, I'm good at asking questions and and trying to learn what I can about these about these answers. In the long run, I think in the long run there's going to be. Man, how do I say this? I don't know if I can say this without. I'll just say it. There's going to be people that die. There's going to be people that die of starvation and famine. In the near future, well, there are people dying of those things now. Uh, in yeah, not, I mean, in not there's insignificant numbers. There's always been people dying of those things. But it's and it's not a problem that we don't grow enough food. Like forty percent of food that we grow is wasted. Over forty percent of what we grow is wasted. Never gets eaten by a human or an animal. Just rots. So it's not a problem of production. It's not a problem of production at all. It's a problem of distribution. So how do we how do we distribute the food to the people that need it? Well, do we take the food from where it is to the people that need it or we take the people from where they probably shouldn't be concentrated as much and move them to where the food is? Which seems to be a better solution. And I think this plays into what what we're talking about with climate change and sea level rise, okay? We we humans are flawed and we've been talking about that off and on for the last couple of hours like we don't see a problem until it's right in front of our faces and it's a catastrophe like we're just we're blind to these things that like hey guys if we don't change this in five years something bad's gonna happen we're not gonna change shit we're gonna wait five years until the bad thing happens and then we're just gonna go oh that's bad let's figure out our way around this and that's pretty short-sighted in my opinion but scale is the problem okay i can see something coming down the line in my business or on my land and i can make a change i can make a change to start to move the ship that is my business Mm -hmm. or my life i can make that one or two degree course correction early so i end up where i need to be to avoid catastrophe or so the catastrophe is mitigated, whatever. We as a society don't do that. Two people put together can't fucking do that. Right. Okay. And that's, that's, is that it's a problem with the human condition or is it's, I guess, indicative of the human condition and knowing that we are going to be short-sighted and we're not going to see these things that are, we as a society that we're not going to see them. Or, or have any cultural will to do anything about them until we are literally facing catastrophe. Like, I, I think that's just a fact. That's a fact that's supported through history. So, um, talking about sea level rise, 
Um, if I said Graham Hancock, would you know who that is? I would not. He is, he's a, he's a journalist that has an alternative theory about the ice age. Okay. He says that basically, uh, around 12,000 years ago, there was this event called the younger Dryas impact. Um, and I'll probably get it wrong. Um, but the, the, this event that happened around 12,000 years ago is rapid sea level rise, three to 400 feet. Okay. Is what is what I've heard said. I've also heard it more like 150 to 200 feet. Okay, fine, whatever. Here's the thing. It's really wild. They go over the Mediterranean and they find civilizations. They find evidence of people, of cities, big, huge statues, stone structures. They're finding them in 150 feet of water in the Mediterranean. They're finding them in Japan. They're finding them off Southeast Asia. Why are there, why are there buildings and stone statues under 150 feet of water pretty consistently throughout the world? Huh? Maybe the sea level was 150, 200 feet, 400 feet, whatever lower. But here's the point. At some point in our history, we experienced an extremely rapid sea level rise. We experienced a time of climate change. The human race did. And we survived. And just like we talked about with the Native Americans, okay, we had a 95% depopulation of the Native Americans. Yeah, there were some of those cultures that had writing, that had paper. Most of them didn't. Most of their history is oral. 12,000 years ago, we didn't, I mean, even if we had paper 12,000 years ago, it probably got wiped out in the big floods when sea level rose 400 feet in a matter of, I don't know, 10 years. If sea level rise, I mean, we can talk about sea level rising 400 feet in 10 years. And that sounds horrific. Well, 40 feet in a year. That's a foot a month. Would you notice a foot a month? It wouldn't be a problem. I mean, you might just notice, oh, hey, tide seems a little bit high today. Then a month later, it's like, huh, tide's even higher. A month after that, it's like, huh, why is my house wet? Then a month after that, it's like, huh, why is there a foot of water in my house? Like, you wouldn't really notice that. But to think about it in terms of, of a different time scale, when we talk about, when we put it in in terms of 10 years or 100 years, 400 feet, yeah, that's a lot. But when you're living through it, it, it probably didn't seem that bad. And that's not, and, and what we're going through now, the rate of change that we're going through now and the rate of change that's predicted for the next few years, like we won't notice it. It'll be hard to notice and we won't feel the pain until it's too much to bear. I hope you're wrong so about, the, about the second <laughs> half of that, I, you know. We're, 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 there was a stat I heard somewhere, I can't remember, but we're 20 years away from 20% of the world's population living where it's routinely, not, not just once or twice, but averaging north of 120 degrees in the summer. And, you know, and, and five years ago, they said we, we have 60 harvests left. That was five years ago. So now it's 55 harvests. That might be, that might be true. They say that every decade, the, the natural wheat belt moves north 150, 160 miles. What happens when we run out of north? Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 terrifying, and so while 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 the 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 economic collapse keeps you up at night, it's the it's the climate tipping point that keeps me up at night. And I respect that. So let's end with this. Yes. The way to insulate yourself and your family from both of those risks, from the economic risks and risks of climate change, shorten your supply lines, 
and work on feeding, work on building a local food culture, local, local food, local food culture, build a resilient local food system. That's how we live through it. That's how more people survive. And that's, that's where I find hope is, is trying to spread the word that, yeah, there might be some problems coming down the line, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We can't stop them, but we can make it through. And the way we're going to make it through is by relying on each other, small communities, and trying to feed ourselves and not worrying about feeding the world. Yeah, they're starving pygmies in New Guinea. Fucking tragic. I don't care about feeding them when they're starving people in our community 10 miles away. Let's feed them. Let's feed our people healthy food from here. Sitting over there nodding your head. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. We take care of our own people first. I think that we should be able to, to also help others, but we come from different political places. Um, thank you. Thank you for the conversation. We need to do this again sometime where I have a better opportunity. I would love to, to interview you. 100% we're doing this craft again. Some, uh, craft some, some additional questions and make you think and get you talking. You do a really good job uh, thinking on your feet. <laughs> I, I do an awful job at that. I'm a really slow thinker. I like to think I'm a good writer, but I'm an awful debater because I can't, I can't grab the things that I know out of my memory fast enough. I, I had a TBI. I had a brain injury. Really? Uh, yeah, just before Peace Treaty 2018. Oh, wow. It's like a week before that. And ever since then, it's been a struggle. Like things, things aren't as quick. It's harder to hold on to a train of thought. Really? Um, oh yeah. And names and faces, man. Oh, wow. Oh, like my whole name, like there's a file cabinet in my head that links everybody's face to the name. I don't have access to that file cabinet anymore. Mm. I've had to rebuild that from scratch. Like there's people that I have literally known my entire life that'll come up to me and talk and I won't know who they are until they tell me because I just, I can't put the name with the face anymore. So there's, it's staying on a train of thought. Like I, I've noticed I've caught myself today a couple of times, like you know, I'll be in the middle of talking and like, shit, I knew what I was just, I just knew what I was going to say. I had all this planned out and I, mm -hmm. and I, 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 it's not there anymore. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's been, um, it's been interesting, you know, living with that, living with, uh, living with the human brain and having it change on you on how it works. It's, it's been such a weird thing. The brain is and how memories are, are flexible and change over time and, and things like that. There's one of, one of my favorite, not to plug another podcast, but you talk about Rogan all the time. Um, one of my favorite podcasts is the, uh, the skeptics guide to the universe. Okay. Uh, in fact, I'm going to purchase a, a copy of that book by the same name, by the same authors for you. I, I think you would, you would find a lot of u utility in it, but that's one of the things that I have, I've learned over the years listening to that particular podcast. It's spearheaded by the new England skeptical society. And the guy is uh, Dr. Stephen Novella, who's a neurologist at, I don't know, Yale or Princeton or, you know, one of the big medical research facilities up there. But he talks about how, um, you know, how our memories change over time and there's nothing we can, we can do about it. And things that we know for certain that happened to us are very likely didn't happen that way at all. And just how, what a, what a weird thing the, the human brain and the human memory is. And it's, 
Yeah, it, it it's definitely not like a digital record. It's definitely not a blockchain, right? I mean, <laughs> that <laughs> is definitely true. not like the blockchain. I'm glad we didn't go there today. <laughs> uh, that, we'll have to do that again. Um, I'm looking at the clock. Yeah, and we have that other thing. Mm. Oh yes, in less than 20 minutes. So let's wrap this up. Great. Where can anybody find you on the internet? How can people get a hold of you? And where can people find more of your music? Hey, thank you for asking. Uh, I usually say that, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just ubiquitous. I'm on the internet is usually the way I answer that question. I'm, uh, uh, I, do some, I do some writing and, and have links to pretty much everything on my website at AaronTravis.com. Uh, I have, still have the, uh, the technology site. I occasionally will write to at AuctioneerTech.com. And, of course, the band is AaronTravisBand. Dot com And that's probably got most of the activity because with shows and things like that and the new music, we're getting ready to put out a new record here. Uh, this uh, I, I, I can't say next year anymore because it is next year now. <laughs> so here in the next month or two, we've got everything finished up. We finished it last month in the studio. And so we've got a new a new effort coming out. It's called Real Small Town, um, you know, about about some of the challenges. Uh, I've lived and, there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's real small town. And it's also, it's also has probably the only song that I'm aware of that has the Ogallala aquifer as uh, one of the, one of the lyrics in one of the songs. And so, um, we're, we're really happy about that. Uh, again, that's Aaron Travis band.com. And of course I'm at Travis, Travis, T-R-A-F-F-A-S on Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook and Mastodon and I don't, I don't think Twitter is going to be too long for this world, but we shall see. Um, that's also another discussion for next time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Elon <laughs> and what he's wanting to do at Twitter. Uh. Oh my! I, I got a chuckle out of one of the one of the memes that came came through the other day was uh, Elon Musk is a stupid person's idea of what a genius is. I've seen that. that. Made me chuckle. I've seen that. Um, I've had I've had other podcast guests compare him to Lex Luthor. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I I'm not sure where I'm at on Elon. Um, cautiously watching. Um, I, he can do whatever he wants with Twitter. I don't yeah. care. I, I think it's funny that two years ago when like the quote, the right wingers were upset with censorship on Twitter, like, Oh, we're going to go to Mastodon. Everybody's like, Oh, Mastodon sucks. Don't go to Mastodon. Don't go to Mastodon. Mastodon's a horrible platform. And now that Elon bought Twitter, it seems like everybody wants to go to Mastodon. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm not real sure what it is. I've already got, I've already do probably spend too much time on social media so well it's the recurring theme of this conversation is people don't make change until they're absolutely forced to and i think elon buying twitter might be the change that forces people to finally jump ship <laughs> or just quit using the product or entirely. that yeah or spend less time doom scrolling yep yep all right it's been it's been a hell of a lot of fun aaron don't even know how long we've been going don't care um Hope you guys enjoyed the show, and uh, if the show notes aren't that great, that's because I didn't take any. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again for having me, Brian. Well, thanks again. Um, thanks again for inviting me down to your awesome studio. And um, with that, gang, y'all have a great week, and uh, we're out of here. <laughs>